welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David? Yes. How you doing? I'm so excited. Now, why is that? Because this this episode is the culmination of the year 2017 for us. And it is our most popular episode. And it generally is our most popular episode of the year. And it gets it is, the most clicks, and that's what it's all about. Yes, it's also generally our longest episode of the year, so everybody should strap in. Yeah, I did not prepare myself for that today. Oh, really? Yeah, because I was just... Uh, I feel like I haven't eaten quite enough. I feel like I haven't hydrated okay. enough. Uh, but well, yeah, we'll we'll get right. through it. We well, can take a break if we need to, but it's best yes. if we don't. I've got some dried apple rings in my bag here that I'll be going to for okay. for occasional sustenance, energy, protein. I don't know, protein. I've been eating a lot of carrots lately, David. Yeah? That's unusual for me. I think I have a psychosomatic thing with carrots where I could like... They're good, but I, f- I feel like I'm saying this because I have. Mm. Like if I turn to carrots for a healthy snack... I could eat a pound of carrots sure. and not, and still feel hungry. I think, but I think it's all in my head. Do you know what I mean? Well, no question about it. Yes. Because <laughs> as I've been, cause I've been trying to eat a little bit healthier. So I've been eating like carrots instead of steaks or something. I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't think of what I'm replacing, but anyway. Um, and as I've just been like eating them, as I walk across campus, probably looking like some, I feel like I look particularly cocky when I'm eating a carrot, but probably because of like Bugs Bunny or something anyway. Oh, um, see, uh, you know who I think of who's that? is, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Vito Spadafore from the Sopranos, the, 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 the mob guy who ended up being gay. Oh yes, yes, okay. And he, and he had and he lost, lost a bunch a of weight. Of weight. Yeah, that's but right. there's the scene before he decides to like split town, mm-hmm. where he because he knows like that the guys have found out I'm gay. He's sitting yeah. at his like living room table and just like housing a thing of carrots <laughs> nervously. <laughs> and so that's what I always picture. Well, I guess it could be that. <laughs> uh, you know, I am constantly worrying about being found out because the podcasting community is so unforgiving of that sort of thing. <laughs> um, no, and so. Uh, but yeah, so like today I had like a whole Ziploc bag full of uh, little carrots and I ate them and I was like, I was like, I'm still hungry. Why? Oh yeah. Cause carrots suck because they're not like real food by which of course I know they're real food, but it's just yeah, like, but still. I think it's like water. It's like drinking water. It's like, yeah. it's not satisfying. It's just a thing you're doing so you don't die. Yeah. To me, carrots are like celery. They're a, a dip conveyance. Yeah. And I don't the Carrots do are good that. for hummus or ranch but ranch is obviously not going to be good for trying to be healthier right um uh now my uh my go-to as i because i also try have tried to be healthy to the last few years uh i think you know what my go-to snack is turkey jerky yes that but that adds up um cost wise turkey jerky is more expensive than you'd think and then also these dry dried apple rings i did just uh, purchase some uh turkey bacon because i've been yeah. having bacon oh, yeah. and eggs in the morning and so now it's like all right i'm gonna do a slightly healthier version of that but now, like, that's, now you gotta get on the egg white train i don't know that's like, what I, I do i have a hard time enjoying eggs anyway i don't okay. like them that much it just feels like i need to have them if i'm having something else you can't just have a plate of bacon like you need <laughs> something else that is also bad for your heart uh but it just yeah I was in um, Las Vegas this weekend, and I had breakfast, as I usually do. Uh, whether I'm staying on this trip or downtown, because there's a location in both places, I had breakfast at the Hash House of Go-Go. Okay. And they have, a, they have a thing on their menu. I've never gotten it, because it's almost kind of a joke. It's called, like, the Hair of the Dog Breakfast. It's literally just a large beer and bacon. <laughs> That's, <all it> <laughs> That's fun. That's yeah. funny. Um, I'll bet for some people it is not a joke. Right. Uh, yeah. It is a way of life. Um, but look... We're not here to talk about food. We're here to talk about 
Mubi. The, uh, this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $8.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently available on Mubi, David, yes. is... Uh, Louis Bunuel's That Obscure Object of Desire, which I have not seen, but you have. Yeah, it's... Um, what's, what's, what's it all about, David? Well, um, I mean, it's a Louis Bunuel film, so talking about the plot is not really the point. Yeah. Um, but it was his last film. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw it at the Facets Cinematheque nice. in Chicago um, at, at a time when I was really discovering Louis Bunuel, who has become one of my favorite, you know, mm-hmm. Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and The Exterminating Angel are two of my favorite movies of all time. Um, and so um, this is one that has um, two different actresses playing the same role. Yeah, which is interesting. Um, and I think this was that was it was kind of a logistical thing for him <laughs> that he had to do. But it's also, hey, it's a Bunuel movie, so yeah. it kind of it kind of fits. Um do you think there are a few times in his career when he just thought like, I got to get myself out of a jam. Wait, hang on. <laughs> I've committed myself to surrealism. Yeah. I can do whatever I want. There's no such thing as a jam when you're a surrealist filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, so it's, you know, like I said, it's his last film that comes um, in, in the same sort of period as Phantom of Liberty and um, Discreet Charm and the Bourgeoisie. So it's, uh, and I guess a lot of his films were politically charged, um, but this one uh, is in 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 that vein is very much about sort of the uh coexistence of the sort of bourgeois establishment and mm-hmm. then the um y- you know the youthful revolutionaries sometimes violent revolutionaries at this you know there were bombings and stuff yeah. which is a uh, indiscreet charm as well mm-hmm. um uh, yeah so it's uh he went on a high note it's a it's a good movie and so the film was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay that year, as well as Best Foreign Film. And as you mentioned, it is his last film. Uh, and Mubi is actually going to be uh, uh, posting, maybe posting, featuring several of his films. Um, I don't know if it'll be every day or if it'll be every few days. But yeah, keep an eye out for that um, over the next uh, week or two. And uh, so, yeah, you can get a there's also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. If you're a fan of uh, Louis Bunuel, uh, you can try Mubi free for one month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Battleship to redeem now. Or you can always just click on the Mubi link at Battleship dot com. And I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com, which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Uh, Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. Um, David, do you know what I've been using my tweaked audio earbuds for? No, I don't, but I'm glad that you uh, interjected. So, uh, as we will talk about next week on the movie journal, um, I recently rewatched Jurassic Park. Of course, I've seen it a million times, but I was teaching my kids about, sorry, the kids that I teach. Yes. Um, <laughs> your, your students, uh, about, uh, story structure and setup and payoff. And while I've never been that big of a fan of Jurassic Park, um, on that level it's like almost perfect everything that is set up is paid off it fits so well into the three-act structure it is fascinating but uh it did get me thinking about jurassic park in general and realizing that i had read the book many years ago 
uh, and I would like to read it again, remembering then that I don't have any time, I, <laughs> I got the, uh, the audio book. And so oh. I've been listening to that as I drive to and from school, and then I, my parking space is uh, about twenty minute a twenty minute walk from my from the film building. So I've been listening. I've been using my tweaked audio earbuds to listen to Jurassic Park on the walk oh. to and from uh, my parking space. So uh, and it sounds it sounds great. I'm terrified, David. Um, as you should be. Indeed. Who reads it? Uh, uh, Scott something. I don't remember his name. Okay. Um, well, I listened to a, uh, new, uh, Chicago band called Paper Hero. That's what I listened to today on Spotify okay. with my tweaked audio.com earbuds. So yeah, we, we stand by them. Uh, Scott they, Brick. His last name's Brick. Sorry. There we go. I interrupted as you were saying important stuff. I uh, what I need to say is these, uh, earbuds, which we obviously both love very much are available at a low, low price over at tweakedaudio.com. Uh, but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. All right. Okay. It's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Tyler? Yes. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. 2017 has come to a close. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> For us, yeah. Um, uh, well, I mean, there's the Oscars next week, which I won't. That's true. Uh, and there's also coming up um, uh, a premium episode that we're going to be doing because uh, we didn't do, because of you know T- Tyler's uh, school schedule and everything, uh, we didn't do a BP's ceremony this year. We did the BPs right. that are all, you can look at all on the website. You can look at the nominees and winners. Yeah. Um, but uh, winners haven't been posted as of yet. Oh yeah. They'll be posted in uh, about a week. Okay. Um, a week from when we're recording or f- a week from when this posts, essentially once the, uh, once the premium episode is available, I will then make the, the winners available. I see. Okay. So you can listen uh, to me and Tyler and Scott uh, talk about the BP's winners. Mm-hmm. Um, and that'll be available as a premium episode. Indeed. So it should be fun, uh, and you support the show that way, which is great. But, okay, so we're going to be talking about the movies of 2017. Okay. You've noticed that, I'm sure, the name of the episode is Top 10 of 2017, or whatever right. we've called it. But that's 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 the culmination. In actuality, we talk about a total of 18, correct? That's true, 18 movies okay. each, although there's potentially some overlap. overlap. Um, so what we will do, because we go from negative to positive mm-hmm. so we're going to start with our worst not worst 10 just we're each going to pick one worst right then one overrated yeah then we started getting the positive we do the underrated then we do our honorable mentions mm-hmm. then we go start going back and forth on Here the uh, uh on the top 10 so i'm going to kick things off okay with um my least favorite movie of the year, which I think uh, so now listeners of the movie journal know that I teased that it was almost Suburbicon. Suburbicon was almost a late 
qualifier um, yeah. for worst movie of the year. It's but exciting I think, when that happens. Yeah, but 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 as I said on the journal, because I think Suburbicon's heart is in the right place, I didn't. Okay, I, I didn't make it the worst. No, I think the most uh, objectionable, risible, offensive to me movie of the year is. I'm going to do the whole title because this is part of why the movie's so stupid. Okay. Jim and Andy, the great beyond featuring a very special contractually obligated mention of Tony Clifton. That is the official full title. So, um, I, that it took me longer to say it than mm-hmm. the movie should be because, uh, it, the movie is so upsetting to me as someone who, you know, I, I worked as a PA for years and I so sort of became, I, I, get, I came face to face with quote unquote Hollywood's idea of itself as the most important industry on the planet. Indeed. And the idea, there's this whole like paying your dues idea and there's just the, the message that you get working, especially at a low level in movies and TV is that you're going to have to put up with a lot of shit. Mm hmm but it's all going to be worth it. And so Jim and Andy is a documentary about Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey's method performances, Andy Kaufman and man on the moon. Um, but all I saw was, Oh, this is a movie from the point of view of someone doling out the shit you have to put up with. Hmm. This is an entire document of Jim Carrey making people's lives miserable in his completely self-centered dedication. Look, it led to a good performance, but it's also the movie. And here's the thing. The movie raises questions to me, the viewer, not intentionally, clearly not intentionally. The movie is in love with Jim Carrey and his process, which is, that's really what bothers me about it is that the movie does not interrogate this at all. Uh, it's a, it's a showcase for look how great Jim Carrey is, was then and is now because his, his, the only modern day interview is with Jim Carrey and it's full of so much like bullshit philosophizing. He has this whole thing about like, does he believe in free will? Because he takes a sip of tea and he's like, did I choose to take that sip of tea or did I just take the sip of tea because I'm thirsty? And like, it's stuff like that that just, he thinks is so much deeper than it is. Um, the answer it can be both, <laughs> but that's not the point. Okay, sorry. the 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 point to me is that uh, that I, as much as I love Man on the Moon, I think it's a really good movie. This movie made me think: Is it worth it? Yeah, that he like put people through that, that when he was pretending to be Tony Clifton, people had to like carry him to his trailer because he pretended to be passed out drunk, you know, or like yelling at people in the makeup uh, trailer um, or then the most offensive stuff is like having conversations with Andy Kaufman's family as Andy Kaufman. And then in the modern day, insisting that it was therapeutic for them somehow. It's, it's can you imagine it's so okay. infuriating to me? I remember cause I've not seen it. Um, and you, you brought that up before. And so you, you've lost people in your life. Can you imagine if there was a movie made about your father, Ed <laughs> uh-huh. Bax, uh-huh. And whoever played him, I can't think of who it would be, uh, was then in character and chose to talk to who, you, you know, as um, your father. Yeah. Uh, Noah Emmerich would play my dad, by the way. Okay. Uh, <laughs> very specific. <laughs> but, I mean, you know my dad. Do you know what Noah Emmerich yes. looks like? It's yeah. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd would play my dad. <laughs> yeah, there right? You go. Yeah. I mean, it's spot on. Um, anyway. Um, yeah. No, I can't even. It, it, the idea is awful to me. Yeah. It reminds me of. 
this is, uh, I'm, I don't know if I've ever told this story in the podcast before. Okay. Uh, Cause it didn't actually happen to me. It happened to my brothers. But, um, so when my dad died, he was a, an organ donor. Mm. Uh, um, a lot of his, or this is something my uh, family has always believed in very deeply organ donation. Um, and our mom still volunteers for, um, uh, what's the word? I'm, I can't remember the name of the organization all of a sudden, but, um, Oh, that's going to donate life maybe is what it's called anyway um anyway so the way it works is they you know take the organs they send them to where they need to be and then if the person who receives the organs is interested in getting in touch with the family mm. they write to the middleman right yeah and the 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 organization that handles the movement and donations and stuff and those people write to the family mm. and they say hey someone would like to meet you so we ended up becoming friend like our family became friends with a family in san diego because this uh this boy who was i guess like 12 at the time now is in college um uh or maybe he might, he might even graduated college at this point um got one of my dad's kid uh, kidneys um and so we, we ended up becoming friends with this family and there was a in in st louis there was for many years uh until i think my mom moved away um because she was one of the people um, main people running it, there was a charity golf tournament that, mm-hmm. um, uh, in my dad's name. And That's the idea right. is it wrote like it was a scholarship for kids who had lost, uh, their parent, yeah. lost a parent, you know, um, while they were in high school because both my younger brothers were in high school and my dad died. Um, anyway, so the year that the, this boy came out to play golf in the tournament or whatever, we actually, the local news actually covered it. Oh, wow. Right. And, a reporter for the local news station asked my brothers oh boy. about this other kid. Have you seen him displaying any behavior <laughs> that your father <laughs> displayed? That's a fucking horror movie from I the know, 30s. I know, right? Is mad love? <laughs> yeah. Come on. I know. Oh. The, the insensitive gall and just the stupidity. There's a lot of levels there. Yeah. Uh, wow. Anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think I've told that story on the podcast before because it's not no. my story. It's my brother's story. I wasn't even at the tournament that year. Uh, I only went to I don't times. think I've heard that story. That's really <laughs> Wow. Was that guy fired? Uh, it was a lady. Was uh, she fired? And no, Pardon she me. was not. Wow. She was a, no, a known St. Louis TV personality. Uh, I, forget her, I forget her name now, but I, I knew who she was. Boy, oh boy. Um, anyway. That's rough stuff. Yeah. So anyway, that's my least favorite movie of the year. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know what's interesting is you could have, I feel like you almost could have put it as you're overrated because there are a lot of people that like it. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, when I was taking BP's nominees, uh, submissions, uh, some of our contributors put it in for, for documentary. Yeah. So there are people that, that like it. But at the same time, like that thing... Him talking to Andy Kaufman's family as Andy Kaufman and then having the audacity later mm-hmm. to say, I think it was therapeutic for them, that in itself would be enough to be like, okay, I'm out. Yeah. I, I can't. That sounds so presumptuous on so many levels uh, uh, and so uncomfortable if you're that family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, uh, it sounds terrible. I was interested in watching it. Um but yeah, not now. Um, okay, so my least favorite for a long time, David, it was 47 meters down or whatever the hell it's called. I don't remember. I think that's what it's called. Um, okay. 47 meters down. It's 47 meters something down. Yes, I think so. Right. Anyway. I didn't see it. It's a shark movie and it's really, really bad. All right. But the more I was 
thinking about it, the more I realized that, like, the movies that I really abhor, because I was looking at my bottom 10, mm-hmm. and I was thinking, like, okay, which of these make me angry? 47 Meters Down doesn't necessarily make me angry. It may, I roll my eyes. I laugh at how bad it is. It frustrates me, but it doesn't make me angry. Usually the movies that make me angry are the ones that have such potential. And for any number of reasons, do not live up to it. Okay? Okay. So my least favorite movie of the year is Ridley Scott's Alien Covenant, um, which I know some people like. They're wrong. I think, uh, I believe... um Matt Zoller Seitz put it on his top five movies of the year. Wow. <laughs> Fuck that guy. <laughs> um, I tend to like that guy's opinions. Uh, yeah, I think I, I think I do too for the most part. Um, but that's okay. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have said fuck that guy, but you know what? Like <laughs> that is silly. That's a silly, even if you like it, there are better movies this year. Um, but I, it is, it's such a, there's some, interesting stuff in it like everything michael fassbender is interesting all right so i can't fault it for that you know every scene he's in when he's in scenes with himself because he plays two characters it's fascinating um and clearly that's what ridley scott was interested in like there's no question in my mind um and he just kind of shoved it into this completely passable sorry passable suggests i'll just say forgettable this completely forgettable generic alien story slowly but surely the alien series has become more and more demystified until now it's just it's like a fast and furious movie we all know what we expect Hmm. we expect some body horror we expect uh double jaw all that kind of thing and uh just give that to us um and when you think of where the alien series started with Ridley Scott, incidentally, you realize like, wow, how far everything has fallen. Um, and I think it's just the, I mean, on the, on like the cover of the, of the Blu-ray and this is, this is the, like the production still of an alien standing like outside the windshield. I don't know what you'd call it of the, of a spaceship and is like hitting its head against it. And it's moving in such an obvious CGI way. And it just makes it so, this might be me, but there's just something about the alien that to me is so otherworldly. And as we've gone with each new film, they just make it more and more mundane. And this Mm. film seems so mundane to me. Like the kills aren't that exciting. Uh, it's completely predictable. And then I think the most egregious thing I've said it before is that stupid ass shower scene where two characters having watched everyone, they almost everyone they know die. Let's say 90% of the people they know horribly die decide not merely are they going to take a shower together. They are a couple and because everybody, everyone, it's all couples in the movie, which I think is an interesting idea mm-hmm. um, that isn't really explored that much. But anyway, so this is like the last couple. Everybody else has lost somebody. So I was like, all right. I and can there's un- such a thing as terror sex. No question about it. And I do understand this feeling of like they now think they are safe. And, oh, my gosh, we could have lo- like everybody lost somebody except us. We didn't lose each other. I could buy that there's a sex scene out mm-hmm. of that, but that they turn on like some like seventies funk and then like take a shower together. I'm like, 
What's what's that? They're uh, made that, for each other. The two sociopaths. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's like that uh, that John Mulaney uh, line about Law and Order. It's like, dude, people have died, <laughs> you know. Uh, and then the and then the alien kills them, and and the way that it does it, everything about it is like a Friday the Thirteenth movie. And the last thing I want from an alien film directed by the guy who made the first one of all things is a Friday the Thirteenth film. It's just it cheapens it so much. And there's always the potential like that's the neat thing about the alien series that as cheap as it can get, there's always potential in it. If you just get the right person uh, to direct it, you can get something good out of it. Like I don't love alien resurrection, but I think Jean-Pierre Genet gets some interesting imagery out of Mm -hmm. it and some interesting sequences. There's always the potential. And I think that for the most part, anything having to do with the aliens, certainly any potential there is completely squandered. And I also think that uh, Scott seems to be trying to rewrite canon in a way that strikes me as particularly petulant. Uh, he seems to be trying to erase like the new canon of uh, that. It's, it's not new, but the way James Cameron incorporated like the, the concept of the queen, there's, there's nothing like that in this. Hmm. And it does seem like Ridley Scott is trying to take the franchise back, which also bothers me. Um, so, but I'd be okay with it if the film were better, right. but it is not least favorite of the year. All right. Uh, let's move on to slightly less awful for me, Okay, but still underrated. And this is no, no overrated, uh, uh overrated is what I meant yeah, to say. Yeah. Thank you for correcting me. Yes. Okay. Overrated. Now this is a movie that I am not only in the minority. I think I'm on an Island all by myself. Okay. Here. Uh, and the movie, it's another documentary. It's called the work. Oh yes. Yes. Everyone loves this movie. And I just could to the point where like, I mean, you, you, you talk about like, um, uh, uh, you were joking before about like self doubt or feeling like a fraud or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I have questioned how I feel about this movie because everyone loves it so yeah. much. Uh, if you don't know, this is the movie about the, um, uh, four day long intensive therapy session at, um, Folsom, new Folsom prison. Um, these prisoners are in these sort of therapy type sessions every, every week, but then once a year for a four day extensive, uh, intensive session, they invite men from, mm-hmm. uh, men only from the outside, non prisoners, you know, civilians, whatever. Uh, and I feel like I felt like I was on, sturdy ground for not liking it at first because I believe in therapy very mm-hmm. much. That's why I don't like the movie is cause I don't, uh, I, I can't help but give the side eye or look askance mm-hmm. at its idea of therapy, which feels more like something from the Tony Robbins documentary. Yeah. It, fe- it feels like it's coming of a moment that is so the, the moment that is, uh, that, that, that is, leading to these breakthroughs, the situations that are leading to the breakthroughs are so unreal, Mm. uh, and so manufactured again, not fake. Nothing here is fake. I want to make that clear. I believe everything that's happening, right? It's just that I don't believe this is therapy. Yeah. Uh, I I don't believe that, that that creating an, an entirely false and unnatural situation to bring a breakthrough is going to lead to that breakthrough actually having long term consequences. I, I can't believe that. But so many people do like this movie that I've started to wonder. It's like maybe I'm just – because I remember my ther- my therapist back when I was in therapy 
more than back, once back you know you everything's fixed now yeah i'm fixed you're doing now. fine um no you just uh yeah i might go back at some point but I, I haven't been in therapy for um more than two years now um but i remember my therapist more than once suggesting like i have a group session that i do that i think you'd be good at and me just being 100 percent not even considering the idea mm-hmm. so maybe maybe this is about me Maybe the idea of group therapy, maybe I still have too much of the male ego thing that the idea of being vulnerable in front of multiple people like that uh, is too terrifying for me to take seriously. Maybe that's it. Hmm. I'm, I'm putting that out there. Interesting. You know, uh, especially other men. That's another thing. I don't like, uh, again, getting more personal. When I was looking for a therapist and found a therapist, I was pretty much only considering female doctors. Hmm. Uh, or or ther- my therapist was a, a um, um, not a not an actually LCSW. But um, uh, so maybe I have things about being vulnerable in front of men that I don't that that, that are um, that are keeping me from being able to buy this movie. But uh, I'm putting all that out there as as a way of um, saying maybe this is just me, but I can just tell you that I didn't see the movie that everyone else saw. I saw a movie that I mostly rolled my eyes at the entire, the entire time. I feel like I'm going to have to see it at this point. Um, just because like the way you've described, it sounds like something that I would find frustrating. And as tends to happen with documentaries, like it could be a perfectly well-made film, but the subject itself, like it, you can't, you you really can't separate the two. Is because I talked about Tony Robbins mm-hmm. was last year, 2016, I guess. I yeah, 2016. So, yeah. Joe Berlinger made a documentary called Tony Robbins. I am not your guru. Mm-hmm. In that movie, the way it presented the Tony Robbins uh, retreat or whatever, it left it up to the viewers. Yeah. It wasn't. Did, did you ever watch it? No, it sounded too intense for me. It is intense, and it's and it's long. At least. Um, it's a full two hours, or at least the work is, I think, under a hundred minutes, um, which is probably of mercy for something that mm-hmm. is that intense. Um, but the thing is, Joe Berlinger is not out to expose Tony Robbins, nor is he out to make an infomercial about him. Yeah. He's showing you this and saying, here's what goes on here. Here are the reactions that people have that are very real and impassioned. You make up your mind how, mm-hmm. what the, what this is. And I feel like the work does feel, I use the term infomercial, the work does feel like an infomercial for this process. Okay. It feels so uh, so much in approval of it. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I don't want to hold this against, you know, I try to just, um, you know, I try to have, base my opinion on the actual contents of the movie, but it is worth noting that the, the director's father is the founder of this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like, you, hard to be. Either it's going to be like, really approving or notably not. It all depends on, you know, uh, if he came to his birthday party or whatever. Um, okay. So overrated for me. Now, David, here's the thing. As a Christian, when people ask you, you know, what's your favorite book? You kind of feel like you have to be like, I mean, obviously the Bible. Okay. Moving on. All right. (laughs) Along those lines. Overrated. Obviously, it's three billboards outside Ebbing, I, Ebbing, Missouri. Obviously, I was gonna, I was gonna bring that up, but I, I think, I think at this point, the backlash has become strong enough that it's not right. worth us. And yet, 
it just won a ton of BAFTAs. You got 12 points out of it, out of the BAFTAs. <laughs> and, um, yeah, in, our, in our fantasy award season. And yeah. so, like, so that's the thing is, like, the backlash is not, it doesn't seem to be taking, uh, you know, from an award standpoint. Uh, but that's the thing is, like, you and I have already spoken about it. Uh, and, yeah, enough other people have spoken about it that I feel like I'd rather not even address it. But that's the answer. That is the answer. It's the only answer I could give as far as what's (laughs) overrated, but not unlike, it's like, yes, my favorite book is the Bible. Obviously putting that aside, Red Harvest by Dashiell Hammett, probably, or All the King's (laughs) Men by Robert Penn Warren. Anyway, uh, Molly's Game is my answer for overrated, Um, especially that script. Yeah. I mean, that thing is... The worst thing that could have happened to that script is that is Sorkin directed it because I think somebody else directing it probably would have I don't know if they would have cut anything out, but I think they just would have like weighted down a little bit or at the very least cut out some of that narration. There is just constant narration Mm. and it just feels like such a and it's an interesting story. It's a very interesting story. And that first sequence is great. Yeah, I you like know, the narration at the very beginning, that whole, the whole uh, backstory. That, yeah. That's super solid. And there's good performances in there. Bill Camp is great, as always. Uh, Michael Sarah is great. So there's a lot of good stuff in there. It's just like, as a film, by, first off, it's like super long. And then mm-hmm. by the end of it, it just all felt so inconsequential, except for the scenes that he clearly wanted to be important, which felt so shoehorned in, specifically that one with Kevin Costner. Yeah. That it just, I don't know, it, it, the script especially just seems like a misfire. And normally I wouldn't judge a movie on its script, but when it's a movie written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, what choice do I have? And, and, and the script is what's getting a lot of the, a lot of press. Right. Um, and so it just, it, it bothers me tremendously. It feels like in a way I'm, I'm bummed because her, that, that's an interesting story and now it's probably not going to be told again. This is the definitive telling of that story cinematically, and that's unfortunate. I wish a, a better writer and a better director mm-hmm. had made it, but oh well. Um, I'm going to get you know, this. Actually, will work as a segue into my underrated. Okay. Because um, sometimes I feel like when we're picking the overrated and underrated, I have to remember the larger opinion of the mo- uh, you know <laughs> larger opinion of the movie because. Are like most of the people that I know and talk about movies with didn't like Molly's Game, right? You know what yeah, I mean. Yeah. So I have to remind myself, like, oh yeah, it is like a uh, a, a wadded movie, yeah. um, and um, the opposite is going to be true of my uh, underrated okay. movie, which is that most of the people that I have talked personally, friends of mine, including you, liked this movie. Okay, um, but I'll put I'll put a pin in it for a second. I will say. Maybe indicative of the fact that 2017 wasn't a great year overall. Mm-hmm. I kind of had to go pretty far down the list and be like, I guess I'll pick this for underrated. Whereas last year, I had to, uh, yeah. I, I had uh, ambivalence about which one. Like, it came down to either Robert Zemeckis is allied or Warren Beatty's Rules Don't Apply. Two great movies that that were not given the respect they deserve, and, I, and I, movies that I felt passionately about. Here, it's a movie that it's like, yeah, this was better than most people are saying. Yeah, this year, uh, uh, both uh, what, through the cracks and underrated was difficult for yeah. for the same reason you're talking about. So yeah, the movie that I'm picking that you liked, um, that other people I know liked, is The Greatest Showman. Okay, um, which I had to I had to like uh, I don't use. Uh, I, uh, you know, we try not to reference the tomato meter very much. Sure. 
Tomatometer, that's what I call it. That's what Amy, Amy, Amy Nicholson calls oh, it. Oh, does she? She oh, okay. said at the panel, at the Comic-Con panel that she was on, she just like said, like not like trying to be funny, she just said the Tomatometer. <laughs> and like the whole, the whole like panel was like, wait, what? <laughs> and so I've been trying to like, I still I hear it that way now. Oh, um, I was ma- I was making a joke, but yeah. did she actually call it that? Apparently. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, the tomatometer. <laughs> anyway, um, but I did for this purpose. You know, more, more, mostly I use Rotten Tomatoes as a it's just a gathering of links to re- full yeah. reviews that I want to read. I don't care what the score is, but in this case, I did reference it to make sure that I would that like okay, this movie is not you know, widely loved because it's at like, 50, right. it's like 55% on Rotten Tomatoes. And that's the thing. Um, is like, you like it. I like it. Audiences clearly like it. Yeah. So like it, it, it would be very easy to be like, well, no, it's a, it's a very much liked film, but no, it is not. Uh, yeah. Most yeah, critics don't care for it. Yeah. Which, which is too bad. And I understand, um, it's real hokey and it's also, there is a certain, there's a certain moral aspect to approving of this movie because the real PT Barnum was not a good guy and not yeah. his career did not encompass or exemplify any of the traits that this movie is supposed to be about. Yeah. Like the, the humanity and perseverance and acceptance and tolerance. Like, it, well, you know that, you know, that quote by him, you know, there's a beautiful soul born every minute, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> That's what he said. Uh, yeah. So you kind of have to like, forget that this is about a real person who, yeah. uh, was probably a huge asshole. Um, uh, but it is, you know, it's a, it's just a full bore, uh, Hollywood musical. Um, and I'm always interested in seeing, I'm, I'm interested whenever one of those comes out, especially mm-hmm. when, you know, when I say full bore or, or, or whatever, uh, what I'm talking about is not Chicago, Rob Marshall's Chicago, right. which is a movie that I've always had a problem with yeah. because I hate that it is two movies, that it's a, a real movie. And then the yeah. musical, whenever it becomes a musical, uh, it, the lighting changes, it becomes like another reality. It feels like it's hedging. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I like a musical that is like, nope, these people are singing in yeah. the world that they're in. Yeah. You know, th- this isn't happening in their head. They're just bursting into song. They all know the choreography. Mm-hmm. That's the reality here. Suck it up. Get used to it. Yeah. And greatest showman is absolutely that. Uh, yes. it, it's a, it's a full on musical. It's got great choreography actually. Um, uh, including, you know, some very difficult stuff. You've got like, you know, the Siamese twins doing flips together, like yeah. cool stuff like that. Um, you've got that. Uh, I-, I talked about it on the, on the movie journal, but the scene in which Hugh Jackman is convincing Zac Efron mm. to, to join him uh, in, in, in putting on the circus uh, is my favorite musical number and my favorite dance sequence, you know, along the bar. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's, it's full of great, great songs. I also like that the songs are clearly 2017 or, you know, yes. uh, um, there, it's not, I think that's what I'm saying. It's not to, like to, to use your term, the movie is not hedging at all. It's going all in. We're yeah. making a full on musical in 2017. The, you know, even though it's set, uh, in what, like 19th century New York, I think, I so, guess, yeah. uh, although it doesn't look, it looks like a set, yeah. which is, it was just fine. That's what musicals are kind of supposed to look like a lot of the time. And that's your cabaret, whichever, which I love. Um, uh, and, and we're also not going to try to like, uh, couch it in like 
these songs don't sound like Rodgers and Hammerstein. They don't sound like Stephen Sondheim. Like they sound like they were written. You know, you could play a lot of these songs as pop songs on the radio now. No question um, about it. Yes, and I, I, I just like that full embrace of making a modern day mu- musical. Mm. Um, it's not perfect. It, you know, like I said, it's hokey. It has a part that I. Uh, Natalie actually like looked at me in the theater because I burst out laughing okay. when I didn't expect to. It's at the very end. He's got to make his daughter's ballet recital. <laughs> so he <And> picks the <laughs> fastest mode of transportation. But the funny thing is we don't see him pick the mode of transportation. We The camera's at the ballet recital. It turns yeah. around. He rides up on an elephant. Yeah. And I like... I laughed like it was like I was watching, you know, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle or some very funny movie like that. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, and I don't know if that's supposed to be as funny as it was. But uh, so, yeah, there's some things that are creaky. There's some unevenness for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a it's a ton of fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah, actually, it's interesting. My my underrated is uh, is similar. It's a film uh, a film that I didn't necessarily love. And certainly most people didn't love it. But I definitely think. From a from a cinematic standpoint, uh, I think that Kenneth Branagh's Murder on the Orient Express mm. is worth seeing because, like, both of these films are just so old fashioned uh, while bringing a certain modern sensibility, yeah. but ostentatious. Um, you know, something about the the Sidney Lumet version, which is wonderful and superior uh, to this, is mm-hmm. that it's made with a certain seventies sensibility. Um, even though the characters are made up very well, it's it's shot in in a way that isn't overly stylized, and it just feels like these characters just exist on this train. Whereas here, it, it, it almost like we're it's almost like we're watching a repertory company put on a show, and it want right. they want to want it to be as big as as possible. Um, and it is, uh, and I think I kind of like that. I think it's something that I. I was a big fan of the A&E Nero Wolf series, and that actually was a repertory. It was the same cast from one episode to the next, uh, and only three of them would, uh, like three or four of them would play the same parts from show, you know, from one episode to the mm-hmm. next, obviously, like Maury Chaikin, uh, but everybody else would just play different parts, and it was really fun. Yeah. And this feels like that, and it's a great cast, and uh beautiful uh costume design and set decoration they they do make some choices that i don't necessarily agree with like they regularly step off the train cuz it's stuck in the snow so they can do that right so part of me is like ah just you know trust that you're the the what you, the claustrophobia is is a big part of it the idea yeah. that you're stuck on a train with a potential murderer um but it's still it 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 makes it grander because mm-hmm. now we're stuck like on this snow-covered mountainside and stuff like that. So, uh, in the same way that Kenneth Branagh was like the right guy to make the first Thor movie, mm-hmm. uh, he was the right guy to to make this. And they're going to be making. Uh, it sounds like they're going to be making Death on the Nile. Oh, cool. Um, so yeah, I'm. I it's not a perfect film by any stretch, but I like it a lot. All right, so now we get into the honorable mentions. Okay. And this is one we don't go back and forth on these. Right. I'm going to run through my five, even though I think yeah. if I hit something that is going to be talked about later, which I think at least one of mine might be, Probably, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, 
then uh, then then tell me, and we'll, okay. we'll save it for later. Um, but mostly, I'm just going to say a few words about each one. Okay. Um, the first one I know, my first one I'll mention, I know you haven't seen, uh, and that's Joachim Trier's Thelma. True. Uh, this was a um, some uh, you know. There's a reason that we wait. It's not just because we're um, uh, avoiding the rush by mm-hmm. waiting to do our top ten. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when uh, when there's a glut of them at the end of December, we wait till closer to the the Oscars. But it also, as you know, people who have you know other jobs in addition, we need time to catch up. Mm-hmm. And Thelma is one that I happened to catch in just in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and especially not having been a fan of Joachim Trier's or not a huge fan of his last film, Louder Than Bombs, um, which I felt had that sort of like um, that that modern airless indie, you know, just sad people, you know, washed out color palette type yeah. of thing. Um, a lot of whispering. Uh, this is a movie that uses that kind that sort of that sort of um, still stillness uh, to great effect because it's a. Um, it's a coming of age movie. That's also kind of a horror movie, um, and kind of a sci-fi movie. Uh, it's about a girl going away to college and sort of discovering that she maybe has some sort of telekinetic or other superpowers that she, um, didn't know about and has zero idea how to control at all. Um, uh, and really it's a parable for someone coming from, um, a very cloistered environment uh, and going to somewhere like college where suddenly there's all these different types of people around and it often feels like they have their shit together more than you do. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of self-consciousness. Um, and, and so uh, it's a, it's a movie about very big universal ideas that is often a very quiet movie, but occasionally uh, it just gets, full on freaky. Okay. Uh, and I really liked it. Okay. We can't spend too long on, uh, on anyone. Uh, this one I'm pained that it didn't make my top 10 because I loved it. Um, and I wanted to put some more, um, big studio stuff in there, but, uh, Patty Jenkins, wonder woman is okay. an honorable mention for me. Um, which I, uh, actually happened to rewatch some of, uh, I was, it was, uh, on HBO in a hotel room a couple weeks ago. So I actually, uh, rewatched a big chunk of it. Uh, and this is, it's sort of the, um, it's one of those movies like like Richard Donner's Super, Donner's Superman that feels like kind of the close to the whatever the platonic ideal of a superhero movie is. Yeah, you know, like she's good. She's a pure good person coming into contact with the world, and there's big rousing adventure, and like there's times when it looks like oh, you know, looks like she's down for the count, and then she's gonna come back, and it's very like in a sense it's very conventional, mm-hmm. but conventions become conventions for a reason because they work a lot, and when someone like Patty Jenkins is putting, uh, you know, the only reason conventions become cliches or become hack is because people phone them in or do them without thinking about them, right? But Patty Jenkins is making a conventional superhero origin story type movie uh in which she cares about and feels every moment of it do you know what i mean and i was trying to think of why it works so well along those lines and i think because i felt the same way and i think it's because when you think about it the wonder woman kind of starts off as a little bit naive yeah Uh, and then when faced with the world she does not become cynical. She just becomes, she just becomes more knowledgeable, but the same thing that not, maybe not the same thing. I think her naivete 
was a function of her innocence and optimism. And then when she came in contact with the world, the naivete went away, but the innocence and optimism stuck around. Like, mm-hmm. And clearly because it was a choice she was making. Like, she was not going to let the harsh realities of the world impact her attitude towards the world. And I feel like that's so rare, honestly, in superhero movies because everybody wants to create some type of anti-hero because the, I think they're afraid of of striking the tone of the Richard Donner Superman where Superman just, he's a very specific type of charming yeah. and you just feel like, well, surely he can't, you know, that, that, that type of hero doesn't apply in 20, uh, 2017. It's like, I think it's arguable that that is, as I think I said at the time, the ty- it's the superhero movie we needed. And even though I think it has some third act issues, like the main character is every bit as important uh, and every bit as vital as any story elements, which is usually the case of superhero movies. The story is yeah. usually pretty perfunctory, but the characters are what it's all about. Uh, I will say when I rewatched it, I fell asleep before the third act. It was very late at night. That, okay. that happened, you know, it was just, uh, I don't usually fall asleep with the TV on except in hotel rooms, which, uh, sure. which I, yes, like I know that. <laughs> you do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I have a story to tell you off mic. Okay. Uh, anyway, um, but I did, I was awake for your favorite scene, which is, um, uh, Danny Houston and Dr. Poison throwing it's not my the, favorite scene. Yeah, but I, I love it. Yeah. Uh, they throw the poison and the, and one gas mask into the room yeah. and shut the door. And she's like, but the gas mask won't save them. And he's like, but they don't know that. And they go, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like so old timey villain. And like, yeah. I feel like Danny Houston is uniquely good at that. Yeah. But I guess it makes sense. That's kind of the family he's from. All right. Um, next one of my honorable mentions was I think might have made your top 10 Jordan Peele's get out. Okay. We'll talk about it later. Okay. Then next up for me, um, Foxtrot, the Israeli okay. movie, um, which I bumped into honorable mentions because, uh, it has an ending and by an ending, I mean the very, very ending, like the last couple of shots Okay, really annoyed me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was like, sorry, uh, Foxtrot, you don't get to be in the top 10. And I don't know um, why they started that Benny Hill music. It's very <laughs> an odd choice. Um, but I, you know, I felt like the movie for the, for the most part stayed on one side of the line of being, uh, I said this in our Sundance wrap up, wrap up, wrap up episode because, uh, Dan had seen it there. Um, but stayed on one side of being overly clever or pleased with itself. And then mm-hmm. in, the, in the very end, it crossed a line. Uh, but for the most part, um, it's a movie. It's a, um, it's a three act movie, uh, uh, with a different main character, essentially in each act. Uh, the first act focuses on the, father who has just found out that his son was killed in action. Mm. The second act is the last days of the son, you know, flashes back to the last days of the son at his post, uh, in the Israeli army. And then the third act is an unspecified amount of time later. And it's the boy's mother, mm. uh, or the young man's mother, um, who, uh, the father's still there, but she's the main character this time. Um, and, uh, it's a, so it's a very, very heavy movie, obviously, but it's also, full of, um, I would say a dark whimsy in a lot of ways. Uh, and also my favorite kind of whimsy. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and also it's a movie that just, this just really speaks to me, uh, is interested first and foremost in telling its story visually and emotionally, as opposed to laying out plot, you know, um, the, the the director um something moab i i I can't remember his first name simon maybe i can't remember um uh 
uh, has clearly thought about his visuals and um, repeats certain motifs throughout the movie um, in a way that uh, I don't know. In some in some cases, it's very clear that there's a juxtaposition like, oh, this shot of a can rolling across the ground is funny. Mm-hmm. And the later shot of a can rolling across the ground is the most tragic thing possible. Nice. You know, it's, uh, but then some of them are like, I don't know what he's trying to say. It's just kind of like, oh, he's having fun with that. How the way that like, oh, that sparkler looks like that bit of fat falling into the fire on the stove and, and exploding, you know, I'm not sure what, mm. but it's full of stuff like that. That always, that just kept me really, really engaged, uh, the entire time. It's also quite funny. Um, and it has a scene. I don't know if you saw the, so there's like a trailer trailer, but I guess it played TIFF last year. And if you uh-huh. go on YouTube and look up the TIFF trailer, it's one of those things where it's just like a one minute scene from the film. Okay. And it's just a guy dancing. <laughs> um, the movie's called Foxtrot. It's not, uh, it's not just a clever name. People do dance the Foxtrot more than once okay. uh, in the movie. Um, anyway, it's a, yeah, it's a very heavy lot of fun, I guess. So that makes sense. Okay. Uh, and then my final honorable mention is Terrence Malick's Song to Song, um, which is a movie that I um, spent the first third of, maybe, um, kind of feeling like, oh no, have I become one of the late period Malick skeptics? Have I become one of these people who has grown tired of Malick's thing? Because it kind of feels like there's... Sometimes it feels like there's no relation between what he's depicting and how he's depicting it. You know, he's just like, he's settled on a visual style and he and, uh, Lubezki are going to shoot every scene exactly the same, no matter what the content of the scene is. Do you know what I mean? And that was kind of bothering me at first, but then I realized kind of like, uh, in a very, very different way, but like the opening of, um, Moulin Rouge, you know, he's, he's, he's getting, he's acclimating you to something. He's getting you accustomed. um, to this world and, and the sense of being able to disconnect, um, the physical goings on with the emotion or disconnect, uh, an emotion from the exact time that it happens. So you're not thinking about causality so much. You're not thinking about, Oh, Ryan Gosling sad here because of this happening. Mm-hmm. You know, you're taking it all in at once. It's become sort of, uh, and I know that um, uh, Terrence Malick is a uh, spiritual person, at least. Um, yeah. Uh, and it becomes sort of a God's eye view of these characters of, um, you know, time doesn't necessarily have to unfold linearly and we don't have to see one thing happen because of another happened. Sorry, I'm repeating myself here. But um, uh, you become by getting further away from the things we're used to seeing in characters and in the behaviors, um, you, you come in a way to understand the characters more just as a, uh, as, as a whole. And I think, um, one thing that maybe, and I didn't, I didn't dislike to the wonder. I thought I didn't, I didn't see night of cups, unfortunately. Um, but, uh, I didn't dislike to the wonder, but I think, um, Ben Affleck is, I think he's a talented actor in certain roles. I don't think he's the right guy for hmm. Terrence Malick. Yeah. Whereas I think Ryan Gosling, Michael Fassbender, Rooney Mara, Natalie Portman, Holly Hunter, like these are that's yeah, I'd an, say, incredibly I'd say. present and physical actors. And I think that's what 
that's what uh it often felt like ben affleck was trying to keep up i guess sure. into the wonder and not literally keep up with ogo karolinko who's running and spinning all over the place um but uh, some of that too but uh i do think it's you know the presentation and the aesthetic of the of terrence malick has become so much of the conversation that i think we're and his clear willingness i, I left out kate blanchett how could i left out kate yeah. blanchett uh, anyway um i think and his reputation for cutting actors out of movies or cutting them largely out of movies, you know, like, um, to be honest, Holly Hunter is not in this movie very much at all. Mm. Um, uh, but, um, I think that has led us to sort of not think about the role of performance in his movies, but I think song to song kind of brings it back to realizing that this is a guy who actually, there's a reason that he, that, that, that big name talented actors are drawn to working with him. And the reason that he is willing to trust these people because he believes in performance and, and, and performances are actually really crucial, uh, to his movies and to this one in, in particular. So, uh, I have some other qualms that I'm not going to go into that kept it out of the top 10 for me. Um, but, uh, it really, well, first off, maybe want to go watch night of cups. Hmm. Um, but I, I, I do think it, uh, it ranked, I think I'm still, I don't know if this is, you know, uh, cinephile basic of me, but I think I'm still tree of life first, but this is, this is up there with, with the best of his work. Tree of life is pretty great. I think I'm still thin red line, uh, as his best. Cause it's just such a, honestly, maybe it's because maybe I'm even more basic than you, uh, because war provides inherent focus and so it keeps it, it grounds it just a little bit, but then of course there's still the ethereal quality yeah. that makes it unlike any other war movie you've yeah. ever seen. I love the Ned Line, although some of my minor problems with the Ned Line, in a weird way, have to are this are similar to my minor problems with Song to Song, which is I won't get into details, but I think for a guy to use the word ethereal, I talked about his like uh, that that he's he seems sort of uh, omniscient, mm-hmm. you know. Um, for a guy who takes that big scope, I actually think some of his moralizing is really black and white right, in both yes. in both movies, um, and it, it's a bit of a turnoff for me, but mm. not enough to keep them from being great movies. Yeah, and it might be as he's gotten older, because like when you watch Badlands, mm-hmm. there really I don't think there's any moralizing. In yeah. it. I think he's actually very, uh, very non-judgmental. Um, okay, so moving into my honorable mentions i will lead off by saying some of the movies i didn't see oh yeah Uh, i'm gonna focus in on three that knowing me i think i would have really enjoyed uh and i can still see them of course but uh uh, i just did not get a chance to see them or i probably did get a chance but i wound up seeing something else it happens um i have not yet seen call me by your name i have not yet seen the square and maybe for me, most notably, I've not yet seen a ghost story. And so I feel like those three, based on what I've heard, I think I would like all three of them. And they it's entirely possible that if I saw any of them, they could very easily work their way into my top ten. So uh, in case anybody is wondering, like, well, why, why isn't that in your top ten? It's because I didn't see it. So sorry about that. Yeah. Um, okay. So. Honorable mention, and like yourself, uh, if it is in the top in your top ten, we can just move on. Uh, so, my first honorable mention is Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. Oh, it didn't make mine, but yeah, uh, okay. his best movie. I think 
you know, this is going to sound weird for somebody like him. I almost, I feel like it's his most, I feel like it's his most ambitious yet grounded and original yet conventional film. Like it's, it's all of these things cause he's making a war movie and he's not doing it in a, in a Terrence Malick type of way. It's, it's very grounded and conventional in the way that he's in the type of, uh, the way he shoots se- uh, sequences and that sort of thing. But as I've said before, you know, when a world war two movie comes out or, or I hate to say it, a Holocaust movie, my big thing is like, are you bringing something new? Mm-hmm. Are you telling a story that, that I haven't heard before? And, or are you just capitalizing on my inherent guilt? Uh, for not being, you know, like if I'm not interested in this, are you making me feel like this is a thing I should see, not because of the quality, but because of the content, um, which is something I have very little patience for. And with Dunkirk, it was something new. The the three different timelines, which you're able to keep track of at every at every point without uh, without him stating it. You know, he does not. He only flashes like one week, one day, one hour. He only does that once. And once he does, you always have it. Like that is an editing mm-hmm. achievement. Um, and throughout it all, I think he's uncompromising. I think uh, for me, maybe some of the lack of emotion and lack of certain character development is what kept kept it out of my top ten. But um, it definitely is – it's so weird because – a lot of his usual excesses, I feel like he's reining them in, and yet he finds different ways. But that ambition, because he's a very ambitious filmmaker no matter what. So I think he's reining in the excesses, which leaves the like the, the ambition, and I think it served him very well in the film. Okay. I think he's, he's focusing his ambition to the things that, that have... The types of ambition that have worked in the past. Sometimes yes. I think when it comes to his sort of narrative puzzle box type ambitions, that stuff I get really bored with really quickly. And it yeah. tends to feel like uh, a lot of, uh, as in the, the prestige, a lot of smoke and mirrors or a lot of distraction. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but there are, uh, there are things that, you know, obviously the fucking around with time, uh, yeah. is the kind of thing that he's like hinted at in the past. And like, he like really committed to it here. And it was, so I guess, it it is more ambitious and less ambitious than his usual movies, yeah. but it's it's uh, it's 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 uh, landing the uh, uh, hidden hitting the landing strip, I guess. What I think what makes the film hmm do I think that <laughs> you know we need to move on. Uh, okay, Dunkirk I really liked. Okay, next up for me is Dave McCary's Brigsby Bear. Oh, which um, I know some people really don't like it. I think pe- some people thought it was very. Uh, I don't think I, I don't think we use the word twee anymore, right? Like that. W- but once upon a time, I think people would consider Brigsby Bear that. But I also think it has. It's a film that ha- that completely commits to its story, and I think finds the complexity of this story, which is a guy in his thirties is told that everything he's been finds out that everything he's been told is wrong and then has to deal with that. Okay. We've seen that type of story before, but when you think about it, like he had, 
On one hand, I think they did play it a little bit safe because he was never molested or anything Mm -hmm. by the people that abducted him. So in doing, you know, in not having that be the case, they do make it a little bit easier for him to still have a fond view of his quote unquote parents. So I think that, you know, that might be hedging a little bit, but it is, it, it's really complex. And I'll say this, as someone who at some point in the future is going to be adopting a kid, you hear all these stories about even when kids are from a horrendously uh, negligent home and even if their parents are abusive to them, it is the only home they've ever known Mm -hmm. and they have a hard time letting go even if the new home is better or at least just, and in the case of Briggsby Bear, truer. Right. These are his actual parents, but he, but they're complete strangers to him. And so I think the film really does engage with that complexity and that he has a hard time early on in the script. Like he just says, like he calls, uh, you know, his abductors, he calls them his mom and dad. And then he has to like stop himself and remind himself. And I think the, the performance by Kyle Mooney really plays that up. I think it's, it's a, there's a nice progression to the performance. Um, and I think he is believably stunted without over without playing that too much. So there's a lot to, and I think the film is also very funny at times. I I feel like everything it's trying to do, it actually does achieve. It probably could be a bit more ambitious, maybe a bit more willing to engage with some some me- uh, messier parts of a situation like this. But for what it is, I, I really liked it and I really appreciated it. I was really surprised how much I liked it because I was afraid yeah. it was going to be the kind of thing this oh, year. Yeah. Um, and I agree with everything you said, especially, I mean, I think Kyle Mooney's performance is terrific. The other thing I wanted that I really took away from it, um, is the idea that, uh, it, it sort of advocates for pop culture obsession as a, because that's, I think that's often treated as like a, uh, stifling force in someone's mm-hmm. life. Like, Oh, you know, get your head out of the whatever, like yeah. get in the real world or whatever. But his pop culture obsession leads him down a path of creativity. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I found that sort of as a pop culture fanatic, yeah. uh, I found that kind of advocacy for pop culture fanaticism, uh, something I could really sign off on. And it's something that I'll, I'm sure any number of creative people probably can relate to, mm-hmm. um, that, they were probably obsessed with either one specific movie, TV show, band, whatever it is, or just movies in general. Uh, and other people probably did not understand it. And then I feel like somebody can only be obsessed with something for so long before they feel like I need to do something. If not this specific thing, something like it, something that mm-hmm. I need to get what's inside me. I need to get that out. Uh, the way these other people have. So, okay, next up for me is a film that I know you don't necessarily care for. Okay. Uh, It is Taylor Sheridan's Wind River. Oh, yeah. um, Which uh, is a flawed film, I think. Um, But I do really like the performances. Uh, I think Jeremy Jeremy Renner is, is really great. I think he's, you know, because he's now Hawkeye and stuff, I think he's we forget that he, he can play like haunted characters really well. And he does in this. And I think Elizabeth Olsen does a great job. It's always fun seeing uh, Gil Birmingham and it yeah. really, uh, and, and, uh, Graham green. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's great. And, and I John think, Bernthal. Yeah. I like, yeah, I, I do like the cast. I just don't like the screenplay. <laughs> and I think because I'm, because I'm a sucker for like these types of mystery stories, the thing is, I think 
a big thing for me about like Taylor Sheridan is that he tells stories that are kind of pulpy, but he doesn't tell them in a pulpy way. Uh, like this story could be a Dean Koontz novel or something like that. Uh, no, hang on. Dennis Lehane, like Dennis okay. Lehane yeah, yeah. writes like these pulpy things, but layers on this stuff, not, not artificially, um, that, that kind of raises it a little bit. And I think wind river is that, and I, I have an appreciation for it when they're like emotional stakes, uh, and ramifications to a very, uh, a fairly standard mystery. Um, that, and I've said this before, it's a weird thing. Uh, ever since I was a kid, I've always been fascinated, um, and often horrified at like the plight of modern day native Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a film that does talk about that and talks about it pretty, uh, unrelentingly, like in, especially like in a, in an age when everybody we're, we're all trying to think about like, okay, so who has been otherized, who has been marginalized? Mm-hmm. Like aside from occasionally being like, well, I don't like that the sports team is named the chiefs or whatever. Aside from that, like, I feel like we don't really talk much about native Americans. I think they, they've been so marginalized that they are genuinely out of sight, out of mind. And when yeah. you watch a movie like this, you're reminded just how tragic it is. Yeah. Cause they haven't uh, just been happened. marginalized. They are genocide victims. Yeah. They've been decimated. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it really is like a, a horrible thing. I think, cause I think you're right, but I think, and I don't want to go down the road of saying like, you can only write these kind type of characters if you are this type of person. I don't, sure. I, I think it should be okay for a white person to write native American sure. characters, but I do think, that we've seen in wind river and in hostels, how clumsy that sometimes can mm-hmm. be. I think, uh, as much as I like Gil Birmingham, I think sort of his sort of scene near the end when he's got the face paint on yeah. feels, uh, and look, I don't know, maybe it's, I, you know, cause I'm not native American either, yeah. but it felt, it feels awkward to me. Not as it's nowhere near as stupid as hostels, but, um, my hope uh, would be, and maybe it, I'm wrong that like, because Taylor Sher- because Taylor Sheridan had worked with Gil Birmingham before, right. um, that right. he just said like, "Hey, I am writing about a custom that I know nothing about. Is this a thing you're comfortable with? Right. Is yeah. this a thing that that's you think a, is feasible?" Interestingly enough, uh, my next film has a lot in common with Wind River, by which I mean it's wait, it's, is it Hostels? <laughs> it is Hostels. No, no, I, I haven't seen Hostels. Um, it is Justin Chan's Gook. Um, which does, uh, which also tells a story of people that are marginalized. In this particular instance, it's a story we all know, which is like the the L.A. riots of the early '90s, and of course we think of it in terms of white police officers and black uh, victims, ba- black rioters. You know all of this stuff that's going on. Uh, and this tells the story from a different point of view and one that you might have might know about a little bit on the news, but not really. Uh, and that is the role of like not re- fairly poverty stricken, like Korean shop owners. Um, and it's it's a high it's a very charged film. It's shot in black and white. In this way, it's it's like Clerks in the way that like they just shoot a black and white, almost as if you were watching security camera footage from the time, which is something I kind of like. I don't know if that's a choice he made, but it's something that I like. And I do. Um, it, it's 
not necessarily a perfect film. There are times when it might be a little bit histrionic, but I think it mostly earns it. Um, and it just, it's at this point, you know, I guess I said it about Dunkirk as well. Like it's always neat when you, when something that you're familiar with is reintroduced to you in a different way. And that's what gook does feel bad that it's called that, but it's a big part of the film. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's definitely worth seeking out. It's like I said, it isn't necessarily a perfect film, but there's a lot of passion there. And I think it is very uncompromising, uh, even right down to the title, which people mm-hmm. probably don't want to say. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a really good movie. Yeah. I remember that, um, I, I didn't see the either, either movie, but at last year's Sundance, both gook and bitch were on boy. the docket. Boy, oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, and then last is a film that I think might be in your top 10. That's Sean Baker's The Florida Project. Yeah, we'll talk okay. about that later. All right. All right. Now it's time for me to get started. Tops 10. Here we go. Yeah. All right. Drum roll. Number 10 for me is a movie I don't think you've seen. Okay. Even though you should. Okay. Because you and I both liked this filmmaker's last film okay. quite a bit. And I think you'd like this one. Uh, this is Michael Almereta's Marjorie Prime. I'm, I'm sure I'll love it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we, yeah, we were both big fans of experimenter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, Marjorie prime is, uh, you know, I'm trying to think where to start. Um, it's funny. I, I it's funny that the, the, the person that the movie to talk about, uh, awards type stuff, uh, Lois Smith who plays mm-hmm. Marjorie yeah. in, in the title, um, has been pushed as supporting, yeah. but part of the, th- p- part of the nature of the movie is that everyone's it's, it's more of an ensemble than anything. Um, because it takes place over years, mm-hmm. but it takes, it's based on a play. So it takes place almost entirely in one room. Um, I think they, they move one like scene to the basement. I think just because that's something when people adapt yeah. plays for movies are so like, all right, oh, yeah. this scene doesn't have to be in this room. Let's just go into another room just for some video. And then they have another shot of, um, just, just Tim Robbins swimming in a pool that you couldn't do obviously on the stage. Right. Uh, there's no dialogue. It's it's one of my favorite shots in the, in the movie. Hmm. Um, it's just him swimming, getting some exercise, but he has a glass of scotch at the edge of the pool. And every few laps, he <laughs> takes a sip of scotch. Um, it's an incentive. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, it, it's the, if you don't know the premise, you know, the movie, the movie starts and Lois Smith as Marjorie is talking to John Hamm and it pretty quickly becomes apparent that this isn't John Hamm. This is the near future. And this is a hologram of, her husband at the age that she chose to remember him at. Mm-hmm. And this is something that, um, is a service that is available to people who are grieving or maybe people who are dealing with Alzheimer's or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, and then Gina Davis plays Marjorie's daughter. Tim Robbins plays, um, her husband. Um, uh, and so that's a pretty basic, like sci-fi, you know, uh, you know, setup uh, that doesn't, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, a sci-fi movie that doesn't require a ton of uh, visual effects. You just yeah. need you just need John Hamm, you know, and you need uh, to. Think, you know what? That has a, a <laughs> visual effect on me. And, and, yeah, and you also just need to be very careful that the two actors don't touch one another because he's, he's not actually there, right. and that's something that you kind of notice. Um, uh, but of of course, it becomes about much more. It becomes a movie about the idea of 
the singularity and you know living through technology after we're gone and the idea of um whether ai is you know can have what we would consider a soul you know if it has yeah. everything else if it has feelings and emotions and everything uh and i think i feel like everything that i'm describing is very basic sci-fi type of stuff. And I I do feel like I'm doing a disservice to how the movie presents it, which is, um, very, it's it's something that I found very moving. I think because as much as the movie is about ideas, it's about people first, real or fake. And it's a, it's an incredibly sympathetic movie that is also a movie uh, it, it's a movie about people sitting around and talking about their feelings for, mm-hmm. or not talking about their feelings for long periods of time. Um, and, uh, I, I did. And so for all of its conceit or all of its, um, uh, armchair philosophizing, I think it's a, it's a very, um, a very human and very uh, emotional movie first and foremost. I also think it's very, uh, the, the music's good and it's very beautifully uh, shot. It makes great use of its small, of its living room, <laughs> which is where the entire movie uh, takes place. Uh, and it helps that it's a very modernistic type of um, uh, home that is mm-hmm. interesting to look at. It's an interesting visual space to begin with. And there are other sort of hints, you know, the, the, um, about about the future uh, in terms like the the house is a beach house but it never looks very sunny or inviting outside and you could say okay maybe this is a New England beach house and it happens to be winter right. or maybe this is somewhere down the line and the environment isn't as kind as it used to be right. we don't really know you know there's a there's a snowstorm outside whatever it's um, uh, it's it's not entirely inviting the the inside of this room with these fake people who might be real people um, uh and I say people, it's more, it becomes more than just John Hamm as the movie goes on, um, as you can probably imagine. Um, this place is more, there's more life inside this room than there is anywhere out of it, even in the pool with the scotch. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's rare. Um, while while I think um, sci-fi can be very humanistic, even when it's very cold, um, I feel like it's rare to run across, you know, character-based emotional sci-fi uh which is why i still think that you would love uh never let me go um okay but uh okay uh my number 10 is yorgos lanthimos's the killing of a sacred deer which you know invariably when we when we do this i always feel like i'm just repeating myself from the movie journal yeah um and so if I've seen one of these movies recently, I feel like, all right, the listeners like I've heard this already, but, uh, I think it's a remarkable film. Um, I will say something that Jen said when she watched it because she honestly hasn't had a lot of time to watch movies lately, but I was watching it and she came in only a couple minutes in and watched all of it. And she said, this is the type of movie that makes me regret not getting to watch a lot of movies. Hmm. Um, and I I know what she means, which is Yorgos Lanthimos just creates a tone and creates a world that, you know, 
like the lobster is a dystopian future, a, mm-hmm. a particularly strange one. This is not necessarily that. It seems to take place in our reality, but he, but it seems like an alternate version of our reality as far as it just seems so antiseptic, which makes sense because the character is a doctor. But everything, every every person just seems like hermetically sealed. And then this thing comes along, which is the 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 promise of death. Mm-hmm. And slowly but surely, these characters become more and more human, and their relationships actually start to mean something. And I feel like, from a thematic standpoint, that is something that can absolutely apply to you know the viewer's life, which is we just kind of go, we can just kind of go along and take people for granted, take situations for granted. And then when somebody says, oh, you could lose this person or any of these people at any given time and suddenly realize, oh, yeah, this is somebody I really value. And so it's interesting to see that progression. Uh, and it's it's an almost invisible one. But if you were to look at the first scene of the film and the last scene of the film, maybe not the last scene because that's a bit dark and a little bit quiet, but if you look at the last, let's say, 10 to 15 minutes of the mm-hmm. film, uh, the characters are virtually unrecognizable. But over the course of the two hours, you just see these little changes here and there, um, and that it can be this emotional and this sad and this um, inevitable, and yet still be shockingly funny yeah. in certain scenes, uh, speaks to just the kind of filmmaker that Lanthimos is, which is he, he, I really feel like he wants to engage with every human emotion, including a very dark sense of humor. And, yeah. uh, it's, it's just a, a really remarkable film on every level. Yeah. It's, um, uh, I, I think because his tone is so distinct, uh, in mm-hmm. his different movies, there's a feeling that he is, you know, very much on, that he's sort of avant-garde, mm-hmm. but, Stylistically, and especially as it goes on, The Killing of Sacred Deer is actually a very classical movie, mm-hmm. and it's very Hitchcock. I mean, I feel like yes, um, Hitchcock is maybe too easy a reference. Like, but this is what he said for people like Alfred Hitchcock, who are among the most influential yeah. uh, directors either. So I might be lazy to just say like, oh, it's like Hitchcock, when maybe it's like ten other directors too. But I think there's Hitch- some Kubrick in there. Yeah, yeah, well. yeah definitely. Um, uh, anyway, that's, uh, I just wanted to point out his classicism. Yeah. It's a word. It, I'm, I, it's a film that, you know, when you, if you, I knew what the story was about. And so I went in being like, okay, this could be a little bit taxing and it is a little bit, but I think he also just, he has such a natural eye, I guess you would say just, he just has a natural cinematic uh feel to him Mm -hmm. that his movies are surprisingly watchable uh you know jen was not intention intending to finish the film she was going to come in watch a little bit just to hang out and then she was going to go do something else and then wound up watching the film uh because i think he just draws you in uh through technique and story and really great acting and uh and that's the other thing i think i think Every performance in the film is is flawless, and uh, once again, Bill Camp is in it. But uh, yeah. it's also, I feel like I haven't seen Nicole Kidman in a in a role like this in a while. And the fact that she's willing to play a a supporting character um, is is notable. It's always fun when an actor or uh, or any kind of performer when they're willing to just be a little bit more risky uh, in their choices as they get a little bit older. Um, one of two. 
uh, Nicole Goodman and Colin Farrell uh, pairings this this year. Perhaps more on that later. Oh um, yes, indeed. All right, uh, number nine for me could not be more different than the movie that I talked about last, or the movie you just talked about. Okay, number nine for me is Steven Soderbergh's Logan Lucky. Wow, I didn't know it was that high for you. That's interesting. Uh, it's maybe it's got a, it, it's maybe the most fun movie that I saw this year. Um, it has some of the biggest laughs, and it uh, we talked. I mean, we were just talking about the sort of. Um, uh, aesthetically classical uh, uh, approach mm-hmm. of uh, of Yorgos Lanthimos, and I feel like um, Steven Soderbergh has a kind of deceptively classical uh, uh, sense of plotting. Mm-hmm. Um, even though this movie is nonlinear at times and it has like fake outs, um, it's still a movie like a lot of his movies, um, especially like the oceans type stuff uh, that is the plot is the engine of the movie more so than anything else. Um, which doesn't mean I don't think the movie necessarily gives short shrift to its characters, but maybe it, uh, maybe it lets you do some of the filling in yourself. It's not, I wouldn't call it a character based movie, but I would also not call it a movie that is, I don't think of its characters as types or whatever. Um, Let me suggest this real quick. And I'm not sure if I even know the difference. Uh, I don't think it's a character-based movie. I think it's a relationship-based movie. While not, while never actually developing the individual characters, I mean, it does a little bit, of course, but never as fully as it could, the characters in context of each other seem much more developed. Specifically, I'd say the brothers. But yeah. also when you, bring, when you bring Daniel Craig in as well, like just everybody, it's a true yeah. ensemble in that regard, just everybody, the way they operate, it definitely like... It's more than the sum of its parts. Yeah, well, as an we, ensemble. I mean, you and I talked about when I on the movie journal when I when I saw it fairly recently. Um, the relate, just the relationship between Channing Tatum and Katie Holmes' character yeah. the characters is so uh, it's so much more real and deep than you would expect from that kind of hero ex wife yeah relation that you've seen in you know the scene the 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 shot of the guy going to pick up his kid from. From his ex-wife, who now lives with her more wealthy new husband, you've seen that in a million movies and TV shows. Yeah, and so for me to actually then buy that these two people were married and are parents and have some respect for one another still uh, was a huge shock to me. (laughs) Um, A very pleasant shock, and also that scene is full of great jokes, uh, mm-hmm. most of them coming from the underrated David Denman. <laughs> yeah. Um, whom I guess most people know as Roy from the office, I think mm-hmm. is the most, the, the first thing I first knew him, even though I didn't realize it at the time because he was always in very heavy makeup, but he, he played a demon named skip on angel. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> who was in a handful of, he was, um, part of his whole thing is that he was incredibly imposing, scary looking mm-hmm. demon, but he was like into football and chicken wings and stuff. <laughs> um, uh, wow, I had no idea because I know you've referenced the character before. Yeah. I don't think I remember that was him. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, uh, uh, but uh, again, what I'm saying is uh, it, it's it's fun sometimes for someone like me who is often drawn to movies that are not plot centric mm-hmm. to um, to get a sort of uh, reminder that like when a movie is not just going through the motions. Um, that that the plot can be a lot of fun. Uh, it's also 
I mean, I don't know if you would, would you call Logan Lucky a comedy first? Is it a heist movie that's also a comedy or is it a comedy? I feel like it's a comedy. First. I think it's a comedy first. Yeah. Like if you look at some, like compare it with Ocean's Eleven, which is amusing at times and yeah. outright funny at times. But that's a heist movie first. Like if you want a comparison, even by the same director. Yeah, I think that's the difference. Yeah. And so I, I it might be the funniest movie I saw. Huh. In in 2017, I have to go back and look. The Big Sick is very funny. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, my, my, my favorite comedy of, of okay. 2017, um, both in the performances and the actual jokes, uh, and also sometimes visual. I mean, there's a part that is not based on a joke. There's, I don't want to give much away, but Adam Driver at one point just drives directly into a convenience store <laughs> yeah. and then casually gets out of the car and I think like buys something and then walks out. His um, performance is great. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, there's a lot of good performances, but he just that, that deadpan thing is yeah. hilarious. Now then we bring up something cause I've heard other people's complaints about the movie. I thought that the movie was actually kind of a love letter to this part of the country, but I've also heard people who are from maybe this part of the country who found it kind of insulting. And maybe this goes back to my wind river thing. Like, it's easy, you know, maybe something that might read as respectful from a, from by by a non-southerner yeah. like me, you know, from someone on the other side, someone who is used to getting in terms of region. Yeah, the South gets you know uh, they get the high hat quite a lot. Yeah, um, and so maybe it wasn't as but it, I mean, the, so some of Adam Driver's performance to go back to what you were saying could be like, is he just saying something slowly with his other accent? And it's funny that way, you know, it could be like, yes. what is he says? Like I read it on the Google. Yeah. Um, I thought it was a very funny line, but I, I could also see someone saying that's a Southerner stereotype, but I still, he's still a good guy. Well, that's the other thing is that I feel like, I feel like the film, I'm not sure if I'd say it's a love letter, but it definitely is this thing. When you go in, you hear the way the characters talk, you see how they dress, and you just feel like, all right, I've got them figured out. But when it comes right down to it, all of them are remarkably capable, and they do pull off a very complicated heist. Yeah. You know? So I think it could be a film about underestimating. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it trucks in archetypes solely so that it can shatter them. Uh, that's, that's how I felt, but, uh, uh, you know, not having spent my life being made fun of for my accent. True. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. um, my wife makes fun of the way I say words like college and gone because I'm from the Midwest. Yeah. Uh, you know, that David Fincher film gone girl. Uh, <laughs> it was really good. Uh, anyway, uh, what's number nine for you? I could talk about Logan Lucky all day, by the way. Yeah. Number nine for me is a film that I laughed at a lot. I'm not sure if it would qualify as a comedy but i did laugh a lot and that is jordan peele's get out um i'll go at this from a from an odd angle i am so this year it's it's looking like at the international christian film festival i'm going to be on a panel Uh that i did not name it is called why i hate christian film (laughs) obviously I'm going to be on that panel. I didn't ask to be, but they put me on there. And then I'll probably also be giving a talk as well. So I'm, I'm thinking in terms of like, what would I say? And a big part of what my talk is going to be is the idea that like the best way to get your message across, if you have one, uh, and most people do, if you have a message to get across, it's counterintuitive, but the more you don't, 
deal directly with that message, the more effective the message will be. And I think I think Get Out absolutely does deal with the message of the way white people, you know, want to use black people, want to possess black people, um, and want them to just do what they want and just see them as like extensions and extensions of themselves. Like you put that in a drama and I might actually just kind of roll my eyes, but in a horror comedy and one that is committed to being scary and disturbing Mm -hmm. and funny, the scarier it is, the funnier it is, the more effective the message will be Mm -hmm. somehow. It doesn't seem like that's how it should be, but that's how it is. And it, partially because it's a film I find myself wanting to watch. Right. I, for, yeah. I first watched it because Jen, it was cheap at Target, so she bought it for me. I watched it and was immediately thrilled that I owned it. Yeah. Because yeah. it's a film I am going to go back to over and over again. And every time I, I watch it, that message is going to be getting deeper and deeper into me because I'm laughing, because I'm disturbed, because uh-huh. I'm engaged by the, by the cast. I think it is, it's, it is a wonderfully made film. And I think it is, you know, it, I, I try to pay attention to debut films and especially if I recognize that Jordan Peele wasn't merely an actor. He, the, you know, part of a creative force behind a very, yeah. uh, very funny, very effective TV show. So he's not merely that, but you know, anytime somebody makes their film debut and they are, they usually work in another medium or they're primarily performers. Uh, I'm usually very skeptical about that, but I think one thing that key and peel do wonderfully are movie parodies, mm-hmm. often genre parodies, not necessarily one particular movie. And I think they brought, I think he brought those sensibilities to this and, but didn't have it be a parody. He had it be a genuine film that is amusing at times and more so, I mean, action comedies go together really well, but there's something about the horror comedy because I think laughing and screaming are both involuntary reactions. I think horror and comedy have a lot in common and I think, I think he finds a perfect balance and it is such a wonderful, watchable film. And on top of all of that, and I'm reluctant to say this because it sounds, normally I would say this in a way that is a little bit derogatory, it's one of the most important films mm. of the year. Um, maybe of the last few years. Um, somebody at school was talking about Black Panther, and he was saying, like, he's like, oh, I'm just so happy that like it's doing so well and it's making so much money, and I... And I said, like, no, I I get what you're saying, but at the same time, it was always going to make money. It's it's a Marvel film, and yes, there are people who see themselves. They they now feel some sense of agency. But to me, I'm infinitely happier that Get Out made mm. as much money as it did. Like looking at it from a representation standpoint, um, it's I absolutely uh, adore it. And there are, you know, there are every once in a while, there's some of my fellow conservatives that will look and say like, Oh, well, if the, if the roles were reversed and it's like, yeah, I'm sure people would say it's racist, but you know what? Who gives a shit? Cause it's a wonderful film. It's a wonderful film first. Yeah. And th- the whole role reversal, that sounds like people saying like, why isn't there a white history month? Well, right. The, the, the reason it's not the same is because yeah. it's not the same. Yeah. In the real world, the shit ain't equal. So you can't, yeah, you know, you can't impose equal treatment on shit that isn't treated equal. And I mean, that's it, the, that's kind of the point. And when it comes down to it, 
if it were, if it, if it felt like a sermon to me to go back to the Christian thing, if it just felt like that, if it felt like this polemic thing, then I might think that way as well, because I feel like somebody's the minute somebody like is leading with their message. Even if I agree with the message, I ha- I feel like I have no choice but to try to see the other side. But I'm too busy laughing. Mm-hmm. I'm too busy engaging with the characters. And then, but that doesn't mean that the message gets pushed aside. Like to me, this is the way to do it. This is the way to make any message based film. All right. I will tell everybody at the International Christian <laughs> Film Festival, go and watch Get Out. That's how you do it. All right. Um, number, what are you, eight yeah. for me? Uh, another late edition. And I was even surprised, but I think. This one is maybe the movie's great, but it's sort of for an entire genre for me. And I know you didn't see this one, okay. um, but I've I've gotten to the point where, um, like you were saying about certain types of like World War Two movies or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, biopics in general. I'm like always have my guard up because yeah. they just they've become so bland, even when they try not to be that they are. Um, and occasionally you get one that. Like this year we had Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman, which is a biopic that sort of like both steered into the convention and uh, uh, upended at the same time, which I really enjoyed. But no, that's not what this is. I'm talking about I'm going to go lazy Don Draper here and call this movie the, the, the cure for the common biopic. OK. Song of Granite, which is an Irish film. Oh, yes. About an Irish folk singer is my number eight movie of the year uh, because it, um, I guess, like. Fox tried earlier is told in three, three parts. So you've got three different, um, actors portraying this guy at three different ones. Uh, once as a child, then we jump all the way to middle age when he first moves to, um, from Ireland to America. And then you, uh, get him a, 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 as late in life as a senior citizen li- living in Washington state, even though the movie doesn't say that. I only, I only learned that because I read his Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Um, we just know kind of get the impression he's not in New York anymore. Um, and this is not a movie like this is this is not a movie that's going to teach you. Like I said, I had to read the Wikipedia to even know what state the movie ended up in. It's not a movie that's going to teach you about this man's life. Uh, Joe, um, I can't remember his name. It's Joe something. Um, uh, but it's going to teach you about what his music was about. The things that the, the folk songs that he sang and the what they and how they feel like home to him, how they feel like a certain, a certain part of Ireland, a rural part of Ireland and the family and the history that comes with him. Um, there are long sections of this movie that are just people singing. Mm-hmm. Um, and often not even his character, not even the main character, other people. In fact, as a boy, he like refuses to sing. That's part of the, the thing is we see everyone singing, but him mm-hmm. in the, in the young sections. Um, uh, and, it's a it's really it's less about this guy and it's more about um the power of music and the specific power of folk music the idea that folk music doesn't just tell stories it sort of uh, uh freezes in amber a, a certain like time and place and so this guy can leave ireland in middle age and end up never going back. Mm. But Ireland was always with him because that's the magic of folk music. Mm. Uh, it's, and it's also very beautifully shot in black and white. 
um, and gives these sometimes incredibly long folk songs that are in Gaelic, by the way, I have no idea what any of them are about, mm. um, gives them a lot of room to, to breathe. Um, it's a very, very patient and ultimately very moving uh, biopic. Song of Granite. All right. Uh, next up for me is a film that um, I I haven't read that many good reviews of. Okay. Um, but I think you like it, and it pushes a lot of my pleasure buttons, and it is Steven Spielberg's The Post. Oh, that barely missed my my uh, honorable mention. Literally, what, Thelma is number 15, Columbus is 16, The Post is 17. All right. Uh, I'm a sucker for journalism movies, first right. off. Uh, I always have been. And, you know, there's some fun First Amendment stuff going on in there, which is an important thing to me. Um, speaking truth to power. Um, but within all of that, I think it's also a film about bravery and what bravery looks like, which is what bravery actually looks like. Um, I think despite it being a film that is often a little bit idealized and sentimentalized and that sort of thing, I think it actually is very interested in everyday heroism. And that's why that scene with Meryl Streep is so vital and why her performance in that scene is so vital when she finally makes the decision that they are going to run this story Mm -hmm. and the way she does it, like if I'm Steven Spielberg, I say, Hey, you just made the whole film. Thank you. (laughs) Um, because you know, yes, don't get me wrong. There are people, of course, there are police officers and firefighters and soldiers and that sort of thing who put themselves in active harm's way, uh, you know, with the possibility of physical harm or death. Um, but then heroism, you know, and, and we're not going to be in that situation. Sometimes heroism means saying something that's unpopular and you know, you're not going to benefit at all from this thing, but you happen to believe it. Um, and then, in her case, it's, I mean, she, uh, Kay Graham does stand to possibly go to jail, certainly mm-hmm. lose her paper. So that those are actual stakes. Um, and she feels a responsibility towards the people that work for her, you know? Um, so you can definitely see the other side. And so the moment that she does make that decision, uh, it's not a big noble moment. You can tell she's probably like, you know, Forty nine fifty one as far as percentage, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, f- and it just kicked over to fifty one percent in favor. And she's like, I better say this before it drops back down. Right. Yeah. And it's so it's so powerful that moment. And and then the big moment when they realize that all the other newspapers have followed their lead, um, which speaks to the idea, uh, you know, this very American idea that. Often when you think you're alone in your convictions, um, sometimes you're a, you're probably not. And also when you stand, if, if, when you stand for those convictions and sometimes because you're the only one standing other people sometimes out of support for you and maybe out of it because they're inspired, they actually much to your surprise, they are stand, they will stand with you. And it's a very, I think it's a film that is very necessary right now. I think it could always be necessary uh, in its current form. And I think it's a really interesting story. And I'm very happy that, you know, clearly Spielberg rushed it, rushed it into production because some of the stuff that, that Trump has said about, like, 
about uh, news outlets and mm-hmm. you know my own my own right wing suspicion of uh, liberal bias in the news. <laughs> Who gives a shit? The thing I believe in more is allowing people to say whatever, whatever they want. Yeah. You know, whether I like it or not and whether I, whether I believe it or not, like I absolutely, I would, it's a, it's a principle that I would die for. Yes, absolutely. That's something that, um, yeah, there is a reason this movie was rushed into oh, no production. Problem. You know, Steven Spielberg said he got the script in February, like oh, wow. a year ago. <laughs> yeah. A year ago, this movie, he didn't even know he was going to make yeah. this movie. And then it, uh, Anyway, um, and that sense but, of urgency is right, is yeah, in the film the whole way. But also, in fifteen twenty years, this movie will still be important because yes. it's not specifically about Donald Trump. There are a couple things that maybe uh, Bruce Greenwood says about Richard Nixon that are yeah. uh, maybe supposed to be taken as specifically, you know, uh, or could be taken as direct uh, Donald Trump comparisons. But really, it's a movie that it advocates for the necessity of an adversarial press to democracy and to freedom. And that's not going to go away. That's not going to stop being true. And it suggests, and this is something that I, that I really do like about it as well, that, um, that it suggests that there is going to be bias. You can't help it. Uh, everybody has their own opinion. And and if your job is to report something, you're not going to be able to remove that completely. And that's, you know, that's okay. Um, but yeah, as the as as Tom Hanks's character is talking about his past with the Kennedys, mm-hmm. um, even he realizes at that moment that like, okay, like yeah, they weren't as dangerous as Richard Nixon, uh, but I do need to keep a distance. Like that's that's an important thing. Uh, like you said, regardless of who is in power, like the the press needs to be. I'm reluctant to say adversarial, but I guess it has to be that. It, it, I'll say skeptical. Like they need to be skeptical of what people in power are saying, but I guess adversarial yeah. works too. Yeah, I think they should it's be at bold, least, all it's, those things. It's more active, <laughs> yeah. at least. So, but yeah, I'm a big fan of it, and yeah, it's hokey, and it's really like there's this big swell of music. But God help me, it worked. Yeah. All right, number seven for me. I feel like I'm going to be tossing it right back to you because I think this okay. might come up later. But number seven for me is Sofia Coppola's The Big Isle. We'll talk about it later. We'll be talking about it later. So what's number seven for you? Number seven for me is James Gray's The Lost City of Z, um, which I feel like I talked about recently because I think I mentioned him as director for uh, Individual oh, right, yeah. Achievement. So uh, so I, I'll try not to take too long on it, which is just, it's, I forget what movie you were talking about, um, but you, but you said like, there are movies that you're shocked they even got made. And so you're just so happy. <laughs> and, you know, well, that was, City, we were talking, we were talking off mic about Annihilation, which comes up was, kind of yes. this weekend and everyone should see. Yes. Um, and so Lost City of Z had a, a notable budget. And in my mind, I'm like, did they think they were going to make it back? Because I would have told you, you are not making this money back. <laughs> um, like, even I knew that, especially like the movie's like two hours and 20 minutes. It's about a story people don't know about starring an actor. They mostly don't know. Um, I mean, Charlie Hunnam. Yeah. Like Sons of Anarchy. And he's been in some stuff. But I also, not to be, not to paint in broad strokes, but I don't know the average Sons of Anarchy fan is interested in this movie. <laughs> That's the other thing. Yeah. And so they, and I know that, I know that originally they wanted Brad Pitt for the character, which have certainly would have raised the profile yeah. and maybe even gotten a best actor nomination among other things. So it's on, but they went ahead with it anyway. And I think it's Charlie Hunnam's best performance by far. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think it is a very, I guess this is a thing I, I, a common theme amongst the movies that I'm talking about. It's very, it's uncompromising. Like James Gray is going to tell this story the way the story needs to be told in his view. He doesn't really do much to Hollywoodize it. He doesn't do much to make it super mainstream. It's still, I think, a very accessible story. Yeah. But I think it's also a story that it ends on a downbeat note, and he still somehow finds a way to make it vaguely hopeful. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's an adventurous quality to it without ever giving way to, you know, Tomb Raider uh, (laughs) or something like that. And so it's, it's all of these things, and it's very much about, like, the thrill of discovery, but the, the, the need for an open mindedness so that sometimes, uh, sometimes you don't know what it is you're about to discover only if you like are willing to look anywhere and willing to accept anything. Will you really start to understand how important these things are? The things you don't know about and the things you're only now just finding out about. And so, it's a it's a very I found it to be a, an invigorating film, and I know plenty of people that don't care for it. Front of the show, Jason Eakin didn't care for it. I did an episode of More Than One Lesson about it with Josh, who didn't care for it. Um, That's so str- I'm surprised. I know, um, but uh, and they I think I think they they had a problem relating to the main character, which I guess I can understand. He's a little bit unknowable. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's I think that's okay because I think kind of any, uh, kind of Lawrence esque one could say that yes yeah. um, and I do think that this film does have a certain David Lean quality to it um, which is a definitely a good thing and uh, yeah it's it's a, a film that I feel like a lot of people didn't see and so listeners if you haven't seen it check it out it's really good all right so we're on to number six for me okay which is. Uh, Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name. Okay. Um, and I feel like... A great movie. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I mean, I don't know what to say that hasn't been said about this yeah. this movie, but um, uh, I think, you know, it's, it's funny in a time when we're talking about um, marginalization and underrepresentation and diversity and stuff, that the fact that a movie about a family of incredibly rich white people mm-hmm. um has has caused such a stir but of course it's also and i even forget that it's it's also a gay you know a gay themed uh movie but it's not it both is and isn't in the mm-hmm. sense that like the movie is aware that and makes a couple references to the fact that this being a a um homosexual romance is going to present a few complications but also it just generally unfolds in the forefront at least like any other romance to the point where it sometimes i sometimes forget that there's anything uh uncommon about it uh at least for you know the kind of movies we see but um i think you can make a movie about anyone if you um make if you make the audience feel like they're people and not, you know, sometimes it's harder, you know, I remember you and I talked, I think we talked on the podcast, maybe off about, um, there was a, uh, a scientific study. I can't remember what university, uh, basically like tracing, uh, people's like brain and heart waves while they watch movies, uh, as mm-hmm. a, as a part of, as a way of like mapping their ability to feel empathy mm-hmm. and that wealthier people felt less empathy, um, than, than less wealthy people. But, uh, I would also like to see the study 
because sometimes I think I'm guilty of feeling less empathy for wealthy people. Right. Um, and, and I would like to see that study. But here, it just so quickly becomes reality. It's not, and, you know, sometimes there's some, when, when you have a movie about rich people, it's sometimes it's very aspirational. And that's part of the fun mm-hmm. is to say like, oh, it'd be, you know, nice to imagine myself being able to live like this. Right. That's not what Calling By Your Name is. It's just, it's, uh, the word I've been dancing on this entire time is that it might be, the most, the single most tactile film Ooh. of 2017. Um, because I feel like when I think about the movie, which I've seen twice now, I'm not, I'm often not thinking about specific scenes so much as I'm thinking, I'm thinking about the movie as if I remember what the wet grass feels like between my toes, you mm-hmm. know, or what the, the, uh, the windy day when they have to close the shutter, like what that feels like in the house or, you know, there's, there's one of my favorite shots in the movie is just a pair of swim trunks drying, drying on the edge of a bathtub. There's, there, there's so much like that that makes you feel like you're there. I feel like I know what Elio's shirts feel like, you know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's a truly transportive, um, which, which of course then leads to making the um the highs and lows all the more um uh, uh all, all the more sympathetic or all you know all the more relatable i guess is the word i'm looking for um i i i can't remember the last time i saw a love story and you know, weirdly it's a very different movie, but I was telling you on the movie journal, I was telling, telling you Tyler and you, the listeners that I had recently rewatched when Harry met Sally for Valentine's mm-hmm. day. And they're very different movies, but in the same way, in, 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 in a similar way, when I was watching that, I felt I, it reminded me of calling by your name in that, like, I feel like I couldn't necessarily put into words what these two people love about one another, but mm-hmm. I feel it so strongly. Yeah. I so believe that these people are in love. Uh, which could probably be said of any couple in life. Right. Like yeah. if I feel like I could probably intellectualize and verbalize what I love about Jen, but I feel like that probably wouldn't be enough. Like right. the, as long as the feeling is there and real, it's when people talk about like someone on screen, like they have yeah. no chemistry at all. Like, well, that's not a function of lines. That's not a function of dialogue. It's a function of whether these actors can recreate this feeling. Yeah. Um, that the, that the viewer is very aware of, uh, in their own lives. Um, and this, uh, a quick aside, and then I'll toss it to you. Um, I also can't stop listening to the soup Jan Stevens song, mystery of love that he mm-hmm. wrote for this movie. Um, I used to not be a Soup Jan Stevens fan and I'm not sure if he changed or if I changed, I think I just changed. I maybe matured a little bit, um, and got less annoyed at his like breathiness and, you know, mm. uh, and also listened to more stuff and realized that he can, you know, he can rock a little bit when he wants to. Um, best concert I've ever been to. Yeah. yeah. I would, I, that wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, that wouldn't surprise me actually. Um, but it makes me think of another, uh, you know, we're talking about our top 10 movies of the year here, but there are a couple other things that I want to point out. Um, Sue Chan Stevens wrote a, uh, song about Tanya Harding called Tanya Harding this right. year. Uh, that's I'm really beautiful. You. Uh, but then speaking of figure skating, now we're going to count down top tens and I'm going to get to my number one, but it's not my absolute favorite work of art that I experienced in 2017 is the graphic memoir spinning by Tilly Walden. It's better than any movie on this list. Okay. Uh, and so I just, when I know we're just talking about movies, but I kind of want to advocate for 
for spinning. I know I've talked about it at length on the movie journals and stuff. Um, but people should definitely check out that book, uh, especially since we're in the middle or at least at the tail end right now of Olympic fever yeah. and everyone's got figure skating on the brain. Why not a coming of age story about a lesbian figure skater? Which now, now, now I say like that is more reductive than the movie. I've the been book super is. into curling lately. Yeah. And that sounds like a joke. It, it isn't. No, I, I, I feel it. like every four years I hear people say that it never seems to be on when I'm watching. It's oddly hypnotic. Yeah. Um, and I don't care about the Olympics at all, but my brother-in-law was in town and goes, Hey, do you want to watch curling? And I said like, yeah, all right. And, and then he left and I kept watching it. <laughs> well, you know, the one sport I really care about at the Olympics is hockey. And this year, uh, because the NHL didn't allow its players to play the one event at, at the Pyeongchang Olympics that I really care about was women's hockey. And last night is when we're recording this, the USA in a thrilling overtime match, one gold against Canada uh, in in women's hockey. It's uh, right. uh, incredibly exciting. Incredibly exciting stuff. Go screw yourself, Canada. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because along those lines, and I've said I, this, I have said on the podcast before that my favorite work of art, more so than any film on this list, and there and there are movies towards the top of this list that I do adore. Um, I know it sounds silly, American Vandal. Okay. Like, I love it so much, and the way that it develops and the way that it pays off is something that is Im- so immensely satisfying and so insightful about humanity and growing up. And oh, I love it. Okay, number six we? for you. Number six for me. Part of me is like, oh, this is going slow. Then I remember, oh yeah, this is what it does every year. Yeah. Number six for me is Joshua Z. Weinstein's Menashe. All right. So I still didn't get around to watching. It's a it's a marvelous film for so many reasons. It is, you know, uh, I get I guess this is also a theme for me uh, this year. Uh, it tells the story of a community I know nothing about, uh, and we don't get to see very much, which is extremely Orthodox Jews uh, in New York. They just, they, they're almost Amish, you know, they don't speak English, um, but, uh, so the film, it's, you know, it's an American film, but it's almost entirely in Yiddish mm-hmm. and they re- and these characters, like they just have a community all their own. If there's going to be a, if there's a divorce or if somebody dies and a kid needs to be taken care of, like they don't go to the state. They, everything is worked out within their own community and it's just fascinating. Uh, and it's about this single father named Menashe played by, I apparently a YouTube personality. Hmm. Um, and Menashe is just, he loves his son so much, but he is a complete screw up and it makes you feel so sad for him. And yet you are also so frustrated by him so frequently um, there are moments of humor, there are moments of extreme charm, and it just, on a personal, like on a personal level, I felt like I could relate to the character a lot. And I think, but honestly, I feel like a lot of people probably can, they, they will look at him and just feel like, man, this guy just can't get anything right. And I feel like a lot of people probably feel that way in their own lives. Um, and Though I, I'm sure there are probably other people that are 
very frustrated by him the way they are frustrated by other people um, for not getting things right. Um, so I don't mean to I don't mean to say it's universal, but uh, to you know bring up our our go to claim you do not get more specific than this film. Mm-hmm. And yet I feel like there's something in there that everybody can, can relate to. Uh, and so it is a beautiful film in its attitude, um, towards people. And I think it's, it's unblinking. Um, it's not a stark film. It's not necessarily a, a depressing film, but I think it's one that takes a very clear eyed view of its main character, for all you know, all of his positives and negatives, um, and winds up being a, a really loving portrayal of this character. Um, <clears throat> you know, for a very different look at that type of community, there was a documentary this year called "The One of Us." Okay. Um, yeah, uh, I think I, ta- I definitely talked about it on the podcast at some point. Okay. Uh, all right, number five, home stretch. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> About an hour left. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Um, well, we're only two hours in. Um, number five for me is Hong Sing Su's On the Beach at Night Alone. Okay. Now, about two hours ago, you and I talked about Louise Boonwell. Um, oh, yeah. And I, this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a yeah. curated online zone. Still. Yeah. Still, this part of the episode is still brought to you by Mubi. Right. Um, no, um... Uh, so I bring up Boomwell because I, back when I saw I saw On the Beach Night Alone back in June at the LA Film Fest, which by the way is moving to September from June, and I feel like that's that's a bummer to me because September's busy is also TIFF, and it seems yeah. like I liked that it was in June. It wasn't like it didn't conflict with things. Like I was able to like devote my attention, but maybe you know they must know what they're doing. Like maybe for other for other people, maybe September makes more sense. But I am really bummed about the LA Film Festival moving to September because I know yeah. that I'll. Bare, if I make it to anything this year, it'll be barely at all. Yeah. Um, hmm. yeah, that's a bummer. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, okay. So on the beach at night alone, uh, the reason I bring up Boonwell because I, I joked back in December that this was the best Louise Boonwell film since that, that obscure object of desire, mm. uh, in that it has, um, it doesn't have two different women playing the same role, but it, uh, it does have, um, two completely different, stories or seemingly very different stories. It has the opening sort of, they're they're not split in half. It's maybe like one third. The first story is like the first third of the movie and the second story is the second two thirds. Um, in which a young, uh, young woman played by Kim Min Hee, uh, is visiting a friend in, in, in Germany and they're just sort of walking around Germany and talking and she's talking about maybe moving there. And there's this weird guy following them. And then that story sort of ends very abruptly. Um, on the beach during the day. Mm. Um, and and then there's it, tons of people around. <laughs> no. Um, but, uh, and then it just cuts to a, an unspecified time, an unspecified amount of time later in which Kim Min Hee again, presumably the same character, um, but wearing a different length coat. That's something I remember pointing out is she's essentially wearing the same coat, except and now since it's been over six months, I can't remember if it gets if her coat gets longer or shorter, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, it's, um, that's like the one thing that was like, uh, this seems like that's, that's clearly a choice that was made to change the length of the coat. Uh, but now she's back in Korea and she's, um, hanging out with some old friends. And this is where we finally get sort of more of the backstory, which is the idea that she was a, um, uh, is a, an actress 
who um, had an affair with the married director of her last movie and then kind of went public and kind of became a tabloid thing. That's presumably that's why she was going to Germany to get out of the spotlight. And presumably that's why now that she's back in Korea, she's not, <clears throat> you know, um, living the glamorous life or whatever. She's sort of hiding out. You can almost say with her, with her old friends. Um, but I, I don't want it to just be a, a, a plot synopsis. It's a, it's a terrific performance by Kim Min Hee and one, because it's one that is sympathetic, but also not, she's not unwilling to, um, make her character look kind of maybe conceited or out of touch or, um, uh, self-centered a lot of the time, like you would imagine fame would do to a person. Mm. Um, but meanwhile, whatever she's trying to present, and this is just a potential read on the movie. She's trying to present something to her friends of okayness or whatever, but also wanting the attention to be focused on her. She's clearly not maybe being entirely emotionally honest with them or with herself. Uh, and whatever is really going on is in the person of the same guy who was following her around Germany keeps showing up, uh, in the Korea scenes as well. And this is where we get into when I mentioned Boonwell, this is where we get into the more surrealist stuff. You know, there's, um, the most notable example is, is there's a long dialogue sequence while someone, this guy we think is outside of the hotel room cleaning the windows and you're hearing the very noisy, like squeegee mm-hmm. and no one is acknowledging that he's out there the entire time. <laughs> it just keeps on going. Um, uh, and then eventually we do get, um, to the beach at night, uh, both alone and then not alone. And we get, um, uh, a, a kind of, I would say pretty fun. It's a surprisingly funny movie. Um, but also, uh, it gets quite emotional at the end. I won't give away where, you know, where it goes, but uh, we do eventually get to the beach alone at night, just so you know. Okay. All right. Um, anyway, uh, this is not a, there will be blood situation, which right. I guess there was. Eventually. There definitely was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So next up for me, we are in the top five, right? Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Home stretch is Doug Nichols, California typewriter. It is a documentary. Oh. I forgot about this. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a fascinating movie. You know, I could see people looking at it and be like, Oh, it's a Netflix documentary. Not that it is, but it, it could feel like that. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, specialized and it is about two things. It is about this shop in San Francisco that repairs and sells typewriters. Um, but then it is also about people that collect typewriters and it interviews a number of notable celebrities, including, um, uh, Sam Shepard. Um, this was shortly before his death. And then, mm-hmm. uh, Tom Hanks, David McCullough, right? Uh, the guy who wrote the John Adams. Yes. Okay. Book? Uh, John Mayer, uh, it interviews him. Uh, and then, and then other journalists and that sort of thing. And it's, it's very, so it's, you know, this ode to typewriters, but I think it's also very much an ode to, what are you laughing about over there? The stupidest thing. What is it? Uh, nothing. That's not. That's not going to be of interest to the listeners at all. Okay. I was thinking about one of Jim Bruce's old mashups. Okay. Oh, all right. What was it? John Mayer McCheese. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Oh, good fun. Okay. 
All right. That's from the old Paul Goble show. I'm yeah. sure those episodes are still on there somewhere. That's a very early one. Yeah, that is one of the first ones. I feel yeah. like that's the one they always brought up as an example. Yeah, um, right, right. But, uh, and then I never, I had one for Jim that he never, he said, I can't figure out how to do it. And it was uh, Rodney Danger Mouse. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's tough. Basically, he would just have to go, he would just have to do the theme song to Danger Mouse in a Rodney Dangerfield type of voice. But anyway. I, I think the one I suggested to him was uh, Zach Morrissey. Oh, okay. That could work. Yeah. Anyway. Um, okay. All right. It's fun reminiscing about yeah, that sort of fun, thing. Yeah. I miss the I miss the Paul Goebel show. Me too. Um, okay. So... But yeah, it's, it's very much, I think about for, for the creative people, it's about this creative process. And it's, it's interesting. John Mayer, insufferable though he might be, uh, has some fascinating things to say. Um, one of them being that, you know, when we write something on a computer and in, you know, in his case, like he's writing a lyric and then doesn't care for it. So it's just backspace. So that is gone. The, the incorrect lyric or the one that doesn't work for him at this particular moment is now gone forever. Mm. Um, and then he writes the new one. And he said, like, with a typewriter, you don't do that. Like, you can go back and, like, maybe put, like, X's over it, but you can still make it out. Or you just, like, go to the next line. And he said he's gone back and looked at the unused lyric, and he's so happy that he has it because he winds up using it for a different song. Um and it's just so it's it's a film that involves you know the creative process and uh, you know you mentioned tactile mm-hmm. with Call Me by Your Name and it very much is about the tactile quality of putting these things together taking them apart loading the paper in and then the sound uh, that it makes and uh, when when you're typing on it and in general it is about in a way that I didn't find cloying or anything like that very much about things that just go away. Maybe they go away because something better has come along. I think computers are better than typewriters, but not unlike John Mayer talking about that lyric that if you use a computer to do it, like it just goes away forever. And in that same way, you know, this shop that sells and buys and repairs typewriters unsurprisingly is perpetually on the edge of going out of business. And I think there's a, there is a sadness there, you know, and I don't mean in, in purely nostalgic terms, but whether it be a video store or typewriters or whatever it is, there are things that shape the way people grow and shape their view of the world. And when the, and sometimes those things, oftentimes those things go away if you last long enough as a person. And it is, there's a real melancholy to it. And it's not saying like, oh, things were better back then. It's not saying that. It's just saying that this is something that was important to people and vital to people for a very long time. And it's and it's starting to fade away. And there's a, a sadness to it. And so along those lines, as you know, I'm always suspicious of any film that incorporates the term, uh, the word American. Because mm-hmm. it just feels like a way to be like, oh, we're important. Look, see, we're <laughs> indicting the system. But in this case, I do think there is something uniquely American about whether it be like the marketplace or whatever it is, you know, the the country or the culture moving past something 
and then leaving that thing behind. There's something to me that seems very American about that. And so it's uh, it's a really beautiful film in a lot of ways, and it really struck a chord for me. Well, uh, I've got a great segue here. Speaking of moving past things, time marching on, things going into the past, my number four uh, is David Lowry's A Ghost Story. Okay. Um, which is a movie about someone who dies and becomes a ghost uh, and continues to just hang around. Uh, and so we see... Um, I mean, I've, I've been, I was cagey about this in my initial review, but the movie's been out for a long time. We see a lot of time pass after he died, okay. after he dies. Um, uh, and, uh, I guess from that we get, we get a sort of duality in terms of, um, saying like, look how fleeting his life, like this whole thing. He had this wife, Flipperuni Mara, and uh, Casey Affleck is the is the ghost, and um, he uh, you know he dies. His wife is devastated. We get the whole scene where she eats an entire pie. I think you've probably heard about yeah. that. Um, if there's if there's two things I heard a lot about this year is peaches and pies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Two movies you haven't seen. Yeah coincidence um anyway uh food makes me sick on screen i should say that (laughs) um okay so clearly this you know his dying is devastating to her Mm. but then the movie just keeps going and it becomes about another family lives in the house and then another and then the house maybe doesn't exist anymore and he's still in the same the same place so in you could see it as kind of a sick joke about how fleeting life is and how um little what we do or say or feel means in the enormity of time but you could also see it the other way is the idea that it does make an impact that he's there that he represents this moment in time and yet he continues his he continues to exist for all of it that Mm -hmm. that just being present is to have impacted the the earth or the universe or the, or, you know, the, the time, uh, or whatever. Um, mm. it's also, you know, uh, it's very beautiful to look at it. It's in, it's in one, three, three, uh, with, uh, the frame has rounded, yeah. uh, corners, which, um, which, which I really like. And it's, um, one of the things that I really like about it, uh, that, uh, Personal Shopper, which uh, if anyone is new to the podcast and doesn't know, like Personal Shopper is better than any movie on this list, but I consider it a 2016 movie, so it didn't qualify for my list. Um, but another thing that Personal Shopper did is that they're not, these aren't just ghost stories. Like there is something, there is, there is a horror influence to some of the, the, the framing and the staging. Um, and so I really like that as, ambitious and high-minded as a ghost story is there's something in the simplicity of its presentation and of its title and of its respect for the um sort of tropes of actual ghost stories uh exemplified by the way the ghost looks which is yeah. literally just casey affleck with a sheet over his head um and a little helmet apparently did we talk about this that he has Oh, uh, to keep the head rounded. Right. Apparently Casey Affleck was wearing a little helmet. I feel like I said this on the podcast that is I was a little helmet or <laughs> is that just the way you're phrasing? It? I, that's the way I'm picturing it. Okay. Because that's what I'm saying. I can't sit, find any pictures. Right. There must be pictures somewhere of Casey Affleck on set with his little helmet on without the sheet. 
I would I would pay to see the picture of Casey Affleck with his dumb like basically with like a penis head essentially because he has a little helmet on. <laughs> Couldn't it just be like a baseball helmet or something? Well, I mean, I guess you'd have to cut off the. I don't. It doesn't look like it. Okay. I think it's a little helmet. I'm what I'm picturing. <laughs> I'm picturing like one of those like spin top beanies, but without <laughs> without the spinner and like more of a hard shell. Okay, that's what I'm picturing. Okay, if you see the movie, that's just what I'm, kind of what I'm picturing is going on under there. This is like the cutest thing you've ever talked about. <laughs> Casey yeah. Affleck with his little helmet. Yeah. Um, uh. So yeah, there's the uh, I guess aesthetically there's that push and pull between the grandness of the themes um, and the uh, sort of uh, minimal straightforwardness of the way it's presented, uh, and then also you've got uh, Will Oldham as the centerpiece BP sort of nominee, BP nominee Will Oldham, um, giving a drunken speech in the middle of the movie that may or may not be the encapsulation of everything the movie is about. Yeah. Uh, it, but it, but the movie also leaves room for maybe this is just a drunken blowhard rambling, you know, maybe this isn't what the movie is about at all. Uh, also Kesha is in that scene. The, oh. the pop star. And she's just in the party. Weird. Like apparently like David Lowry was a Kesha fan and they like met and he was like making the movie, which by the way, apparently the movie was made like almost entirely in secret hmm. because, it was so cheap that Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara didn't tell their representation they were making this movie oh, wow. because they knew they couldn't, the representation wouldn't like let them get away with getting paid as little as they did apparently. Uh, and then the effects were done by uh, pretty much as a favor by ILM because David Lowry had worked with them on Pete's dragon. Oh yeah. Um, uh, cause there do, there, there are eventually some, uh, fairly large, uh, effects sequences. Hmm. Um, and there's a lot of very, small ones and with the way that um the way that we see time pass sometimes very quickly i've talked way too much about this movie but it's uh it's really great and uh you should see it i wonder how much uh how much of their budget went to uh little helmets because i have to assume casey affleck was just smashing them right and left <laughs> um <laughs> but just on accident just like walking into door frames oh, like no oh. <laughs> uh, all right <laughs> really made made Casey Affleck into a dope. <laughs> yeah. Just oh boy. Okay. <clears throat> All right, so my number 4 is Coganada's Columbus. Okay. Um which I believe is what 16 for 16 just missed okay. the honorable mentions for me. Uh yeah, it's a film that going in and for the first few minutes I thought like I am not going to like this. I feel like <laughs> Sorry, David just hit a lamp with his with his outstretched yeah, arm. Yeah, am I like Casey Affleck walking into walls? <laughs> exactly. Um, so, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm a little punchy now. All I'm imagining is him walking along and like walking out of frame, and then you hear a crash and like a cat <laughs> screech or something. Um, anyway. Yeah, going into the film, I, I really was suspicious of it. Like the way the music was. Uh, I don't know the the placement of the music, the the very deliberate uh, pacing and the way it was shot. I just thought like, okay, this is a film that's going to be like in love with itself and just in love with its sense of beauty and all that sort of thing. And I thought it was going to be very mannered. And 
Uh, and it kind of is all of that, but in a really wonderful way. It's a, it's a filmmaker who's not necessarily in love with himself, uh, maybe not even in love with the story that he has to tell, but in love with the people on screen and the world that they inhabit. Yeah. Um, and so, and then the music is so beautiful uh, that there's, to go back to this word, it feels uh, there's sort of an ethereal quality to it. And and along with the, the specific stories of the characters, um, you know, uh, uh, Haley Lou Richardson and John Cho are both dealing with parents. You know, his father has had, uh, is essentially in a coma and everyone just, is just waiting for him to die mm-hmm. at this point. And then Haley Lou Richardson's mom is a drug addict or a recovering drug addict and she has to deal with her. And so it's a, it's a film that's very much about, among other things, um, this odd relationship between generations and this feeling of obligation by the younger generation towards the older generation and questioning whether that obligation should exist and how much we should be dictate how much we should allow our lives to be dictated by the generation before and not to imply that we we should be ungrateful to our parents or anything like that but there is a natural order which is the you know your children or whatever like they will grow up and do their own thing and in both instances you know one child is forced to come and be with his father despite feeling distant from his father for a long time and feeling no real sense Mm -hmm. of commitment to him but he's more committed to the korean traditions of you know taking care of his father and then i don't even think he's really committed to them he's just he's doing observing them yeah yeah no sorry he's not at all interested in those traditions he's just doing it maybe to get people off his back right maybe just because it's just so ingrained in him and then Haley Lou richardson loves her mother a great deal but after a while it's arguable how healthy her mother's Mm -hmm. presence in her life is and so it's just there's a real messiness to it but it's also told in a very ordered way uh, and you realize that as we're looking at these really beautiful architectural structures and then the film is shot in a very specific way, a very symmetrical way, you see these characters that are trying to find order in a very in their very chaotic lives um, and that their emotions could are, are about to run rampant, but they're trying to hem them in. And in some cases, probably unhealthily, but in other cases just trying to figure out a way to, to cope with them, uh, but not be, not have their actions dictated by them. So there's, there's a lot going on in the film, uh, all while seeming surprisingly minimalistic. But, um, I think it's features great performances, including a a really, for me, a really unexpected performance by Parker Posey, who I think of as a, as a really strong comedic actress, which she is, um, and she brings certain some of those sensibilities to her character, but more than anything, her character is just remarkably sad and mournful. Um, and I think Rory Culkin also does a great job. It's just a it's a good cast all around, and um, and a really just a really unexpectedly beautiful movie that just stayed with me for I saw it months and months ago. Yeah, and it just stayed with me. Yeah, uh, um, like you said, I'm just going to repeat what I said on the movie journal because I saw it much more recently, but. Um, 
it really felt like a movie uh, and the killing of a sacred deer kind of deer kind of had this too like mm-hmm. a movie that um as sometimes outlandish or alien as its approach to the setting is also has a real feel for the american midwest mm-hmm. um i can't remember what city they say what city um uh sacred deer takes place in i want to say it's like cincinnati maybe? i think it's that something like that i um, don't remember exactly though uh but anyway um uh it, it it really felt it, it felt like the midwest with these weird buildings in it but also it didn't feel like i use the word alien it didn't feel like they were plopped down mm-hmm. it felt like they were part of the landscape like you could actually yeah. see them but also like Koganata and the characters are kind of like elbowing you like pointing out like do you see this thing that no one else is seeing yeah that's it, right there in plain sight that's what the i liked its approach to the architecture is not just using it as like it, like it was a music video. Like, hey, this, right. won't, won't this be a cool background? It actually becomes uh, sort of symbolic of how these characters feel out of place in a very, um, you know, theoretically a very welcoming place. Yeah, but they still feel different. All right, number three, home stretch. Um, Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. Okay, okay, didn't make your list at all. No, uh, I'm upset to hear that. Sorry. I'm not sure it's uh, I, I haven't decided whether or not it's my favorite Guillermo del Toro movie or not because I still love Pan's Labyrinth and I love The Devil's Backbone I, I like all those movies but I like those movies you don't care for it, Pacific Rim I uh, don't care for Pacific Rim at all um, uh, but The Shape of Water is it's very Guillermo del Toro in that it's very uh, you know it's horror in, informed and mm-hmm. and sometimes it's just straight out horrific. I love that phrase. Uh, horror, horror informed. informed. Yeah. Oh. Um, uh, but it is just flat out horrific. Sometimes there's, um, uh, there's a, a, a lot of blood. Some people get, people get killed. Yeah. Um, some people get, uh, fingers bitten off, uh, and then and sewn then back, sewn on, back on, on and then, then ripped off again later. Oh. <laughs> and, um, uh, uh, but meanwhile, it's also an, an an incredibly beautiful and almost furious love story. I think there's for okay. I'll talk about two things. I'll talk about the the way that the the love story comes together, which I really like that it doesn't that it's two characters who can't talk to each other. Mm. She uh, doesn't have the power of speech, um, and he uh, is a fish thing that doesn't make doesn't speak any human language well, see, i read it differently i just thought he was just so just so dumbstruck by her beauty okay. he can speak he speaks like fraser <laughs> or maybe like niles oh uh, <laughs> i didn't even mean to do that yeah. isn't that delightful okay um, sorry go on anyway um and so i think going back to what i was saying about song to song to song forever ago um their entire courtship is just in their physical performances Mm -hmm. uh and i buy it i know that's been for some who have had a dig or had problems with the movie um they feel like there's no explanation for why they fall for each other i uh i fully bought that they found something in each other uh and i read it in their physical performances um so you've got that but i also say it's a furious movie to compare it to Call Me By Your Name, which kind of found a lot of beauty in, for the most part, at least especially when these two are together, the fact that they're that there are two men isn't an issue. Mm-hmm. But The Shape of Water is a movie that is very much about uh, 
words we've already used on this episode, marginalized people or mm-hmm. whatever. You've got Richard Jenkins is a gay man. You've got Octavia Spencer, who's a black woman. You've got uh, Sally Hawkins, who has this physical, you know, physical yeah, dis- dis- disability. Disability, um, and of course, you've got the much maligned fish man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I think um, this, in comparison to Coming by Your Name, this is a movie that never lets you forget what these people sort of represent. And there's a there's a real anger to the movie. Um, but also an anger that sees that the way forward is mostly through, through, through love and togetherness, but also acknowledging that maybe one or two people will have to get killed. (laughs) Um, uh, and I think there, there's a, there's a real, uh, there's a real balance of tone that Guillermo del Toro does not, I mean, very different tones, but not unlike what Jordan Peele did in get out in, in that it could be, a comedy and a thriller and a horror movie all at once. You know, this is a, a movie that is, uh, you know, like I said, angry and beautiful and a love story and a horror story and a, you know, uh, espionage story, yeah. <laughs> like a spy story in which people get killed. Um, and, uh, all against a backdrop that is so fully conceived and built from the ground up. You know, Guillermo del Toro is, has always been, um, uh, a um, uh, a really ambitious visual director, and I think his uh, production design and art direction team, and of course um, cinematography, and uh, which is by um, why am I forgetting the name of the cinematographer? Oh well, I'll, I'll look it up. Um, is it Bruno Dubonel? Um, I think it might be, but now I don't recall. And then you've got the music by Alexander Desplat. Um, uh, it's such a lushly conceived movie. Um, much, I mean, I, I guess kind of like Crimson Peak was, but I do think this is, um, I think Crimson Peak was a movie that was, it was out to fuck you up. And this, yeah. this is a movie that I On think a number of levels. Yeah. Uh, and, but I think the shape of water did wants to do that. It wants to shake you up at least a little bit. Um, Dan Lostson. Dan Lawson. Okay. Yeah, Bruno Dubonel shot something this year. He did, and I don't uh, remember why. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, uh, but The Shape of Water is also a movie that I think, you know, we've... Um, uh, that uh, believes in... I, I, I hate to be corny. We've, we've had in a lot of the protests against, you know, rising, you know, the rise of neo-fascism and the... Mm-hmm. Uh, hateful rhetoric about immigrants and um, the gun things that we talked about uh, mm-hmm. last week. A lot of the protests, people talking about the idea that um, uh, quote unquote love trumps hate or love will win, right. you know? And I think the shape of water is a movie that believes that and can get starry eyed about that, but also has, like I said, one foot in the world of realism where like, you know, uh, in order for love to win, some things are going to have to get a little ugly. Uh, yeah. And so I think it's a really complex movie that's also uh, just a fun geek out, too, for Guillermo del Toro, mm. getting to make his Creature of the Black Lagoon movie in which the creature actually, you know, gets laid. <laughs> which was the thing that was missing from Creature of the Black he, Lagoon. But that's what he has talked about, is that when yeah. he was a boy and he saw Creatures in the Black Lagoon, he was sad that they, the creature and the woman didn't get together at the yeah. end. <laughs> All right. Just wish fulfillment. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I uh, there's a there's a lot of great stuff about the film. I think I tend to think about it, it, it its individual parts and not so much as a whole. I don't think it necessarily uh, adds up for me that well. But individually, I like all of these things. I think it's a beautiful score, um, and I love Sally Hawkins. Like she's up for a BP. I voted for her as like number one. I really uh, really adored her uh, performance. Um, I think the the love story for me, I know it sounds, this sounds so specific. I feel like I needed one or two more scenes Okay, of like, get to know you. Like it felt like we jumped from eating eggs to, but they're also to escape. You're forgetting about dancing, dancing to jazz. I guess there is that. That was an important scene and I thought it was actually very effective. So yeah. yeah. Um, but I just, it felt like it felt believable because the actors involved were like doing great work, it just felt like it's like oh, I felt like we jumped something. We jumped like one scene. I know that's, and then also part of me, I know. Oh, oh, I guess I shouldn't spoil the ending. Oh uh, yeah. All right. Okay. Never mind. Okay. Um, the 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 eventual um, ending in regards to Michael Shannon's character, I feel like they could have gone another way with it that actually would have been more satisfying. Okay. Um, but that's for, that's for off mic. Okay. Um, what are we at? Three, three home stretch. Number three. uh, Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Number three for me is Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049. Great. Okay. Great movie. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, listeners who back when I was writing like this column thing, um, that I will get back to at some point. Oh yeah. I hope so. Um, Tyler's takes, wasn't called that, but I guess it could be. Um, uh, yeah, anybody that read those know that knew that I was very skeptical of this film. I felt like, on one hand, I was like, if anybody can do it well, it's going to be Denis Villeneuve, who, as I said about Arrival, I thought was born to make sci-fi. Hmm. Um, but, but I just thought, like, oh man, it's just going to feature all kinds of. I just thought it was going to be like fan service and it just felt so unnecessary to me. Right. Um, and if any, if the film does anything, it, it makes a, a, a wonderful argument for its own existence mm-hmm. because it really does. It's not just a rehash of the first film. It's a branching out. It's, it's an expansion of the first film. Um, and, if possible, it, it's maybe even bleaker than the first film, but with a with a definite sense of hope. Um, but yeah. a lot of the sequence, a lot of the the circumstances are are bleaker and more emotionally hopeless mm-hmm. uh, at times. But it also does it. It does something that the Last Jedi does, which is I feel like at this point movies have recognized that we are all very used to the idea of somebody being the chosen one and Blade Runner subverts that last Jedi subverts that in a way that I absolutely love. But in doing so, it makes it so much more important. It goes back to what I was saying about the post, which it says like, as it turns out, if you're not the chosen one, you, you can still do amazing things. And it's actually a bigger deal. If you're not the chosen one, if there ever was one, um, and so, so Ryan Gosling's character has such a fascinating arc as he, as like a certain hope is awakened in him and he's just like running towards it. And, and then that hope changes and we get 
Deckard back into it, and I think is the best performance Harrison Ford's given in a long time. Um, and that's and that's just from a story and thematic standpoint. There's also it's just absolutely gorgeous with a really wonderful soundscape, a really effective score. And it just, you know, some people said that it was too long. I feel like if it means I'm going to be immersed in this world yeah. for three hours instead of two, then by all means, uh, bring it on. I'm happy uh, about that. And it's just, I thought it was a remarkably effective film that I thought was much more, it was more emotional than the first film, but not artificially. I think that it earns that emotion as we see characters who are just so desperate to break out of their predetermined roles in this future. And, uh, I just thought, yeah, I thought it's a, it's a remarkably effective film in ways that I was not expecting. Um, <clears throat> I wonder, yeah, you know, I was thinking recently about how I have always said and say to this day that my favorite TV series of all time is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm-hmm. But I kind of know that once a few, maybe a few more years have passed, I'll be more willing to say that maybe it's Hannibal. Hannibal might sure. actually be my favorite. Sure. So I'm wondering how long will it be till I'm comfortable saying that Blade Runner 2049 is ble- better than Blade Runner? It's because I think it might be. It could be. I don't know. It's Roy Batty is a really, really good character. Yeah. As is um, JF Sebastian and Tyrell. Like it's hard to beat on that level. And his, his monologue there at the end is like the best thing in that film. And I think it might be better than anything in this film, but yeah. as, and, and I'm almost willing to say that I don't even want to think of them in that term, in those terms. Hmm. Like I'm willing to think of them like a hundred percent together. And one is just an extension of the other. And I know that people don't like to think in those terms, like, um, but, but I'm okay with it. I'm o- I'm okay with uh, with saying the original is really great and this one's really great. Um, well, you mostly said everything I wanted to say about the bleakness and the and the hopefulness. I did want to point out or reiterate something I said back on the on the journal, um, which is you've got a lot of great cast members here from the main characters down to people like Dave Bautista uh, mm-hmm. and uh, BP nominee Dave Bautista That's right. and Edward James almost. But I feel like I particularly want to um, single out Sylvia hoax mm-hmm. who plays, um, I guess, Neander Wallace's right hand yeah. uh, replicant. Yeah. Um, uh, it's an, inc- it's an incredible performance. There's so much going on yeah. in, because I feel like we, uh, and I think it's important to the world building as much as uh, the, I roll my eyes at that term sometimes. Um, but one thing we learn is that the newer breeds, I don't know if breeds, newer models of replicants yeah. uh, are, aren't able to disobey. Yeah. Right. And I think in Sylvia Hoke's character, we actually see that we see Neander Wallace tell her to do things that she has to do and she does them efficiently as a machine. Um, but there are sometimes when, uh, she also wishes wishes she didn't have to do them. I think, mm-hmm. and I think we see that uh, that play, interplay um, and that intertension uh, really well. I think the everyone's really good in the movie. So I don't want to say she's the standout, but I do feel like maybe she hasn't been talked about enough. Yeah, that's how I felt. I mean, when we talked about individual achievement, um, the uh, ugh, now I don't remember oh, Anna Day uh, Armas or something like that. I, I don't right recall. Here. Yes, you have it. Anna 
they are mess. Okay. Um, yeah, I feel like both of them serve such a, I feel like they're almost sort of parallel characters, um, playing similar types of roles, but on either side of the protagonist. And I think they both really do wonderful work. Mm-hmm. All okay, right. Number two. To number two for me, Sean Baker's the Florida project. All right. I know you saw it because it was I in did. your, uh, honorable mention. Number 11. Excuse me. Um, no, not honorable mention. That would be Menashe. Exactly. Hey, um, watch out. <laughs> I think it's arguable. I think um, the people in the film would say he is not a mensch. Okay. Um, I've always wanted someone to say that about me and like mean it. That you're a mensch? Yeah. I feel like that would be a real compliment. You've got uh, some work to do. <laughs> I think I'm pretty menschy. I think I have a lot of mensch height. Um, I could, yeah, I suppose. Uh, all right. That's not the point. The point is that uh, the Florida Project, Sean Baker has done it again after after Tangerine. Um, I, I feel like on a couple of other of these movies, I've um, used the word uh, humanistic, but his, that's his approach is is that it's the essence of humanism. Um, mm-hmm. He um, is pretty much unwilling to judge any of his characters. Um, or at least his main characters, those who might prey on them, mm-hmm. be they uh, a weird old child molester or uh, Macon Blair as a skeezy uh, yeah. <laughs> vacation dad. Um, Although part of me, his character frustrates me on two levels. Number one is that like, man, you're there with your family. Uh-huh. Like, How do you even, how do you justify doing this? Yeah. On the other hand, it's like, oh, man, those wristbands, <laughs> they're going to be hard to replace. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, Not impossible, but it's going to be difficult. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you know more than I do. Do they, they They don't have those kind of wristbands at Disneyland, do they? No. Because no, it's, it's about only, all the it's multi. Right. There's so many parks in Disney World. Right. Anyway, that's not the point. People, people haven't seen the movie. I guess, I don't know, if you haven't seen the movie at this point. Uh, well, I, maybe you have, it hasn't been available to you, actually. That's now true, I think yeah. about it, um, unfortunately. Anyway, um, but, um, and again, like, uh, now I'm really in my head about, am I repeating stuff I've said on past episodes, but we, I've talked about this movie a lot. Yeah. Um, and it's the kind of thing where when you hear the premise or whatever, or the description of the setting that it's at a, um, a, a motel, uh, in Orlando that is, um, essentially used as long-term residence by, uh, people who are too uh, too poor or have records or whatever are not able to get actual long term residences, and they essentially stay in these these uh, motels, scraping by a night at a time or whatever. Um, it sounds really depressing, mm-hmm. and it's not depressing at all because it's about there are moments that are depressing, but it's not. But it's not an overriding tone. But it's not. <laughs> it's not hopeless at all. I I guess is what I'm saying. Like, I feel like it so puts you in the point of view and the state of mind of these people Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's easy, I guess for me to say, Oh, you know, as someone who has a steady job or, you know, and has Mm -hmm. a nice, uh, decent apartment and a car and all these luxuries or whatever, it's for me to, for me to imagine myself today in that position, it seems devastating. Mm-hmm. What would I even do? Right. And I think the Florida project is a story of how humans just survive. And if you're in that situation, 
you will find solutions. This isn't, and that's what I mean, that it isn't about hopelessness. Right. You know what I mean? Especially because there are going to be, hopefully, people like, like Willem Dafoe's character yeah. uh, there, who is a man with problems of his own, um, clearly has not been necessarily a saint his entire life, but is uh, a, a truly decent human being. Yeah. But not, not, you know, he's not beatific either. He's a human, yeah. you know, um, and he sometimes fails and he sometimes accidentally drops a bucket of paint and it, uh, which is one of my favorite shots of in any yeah. movie this year is him accidentally dropping that bucket of paint from the third yeah. story or whatever. And it splashes all over the parking lot. Um, uh, and I, and so I feel like you're kind of skeptical about what I'm saying, even though you obviously like the movie a lot too, but I, I don't think it is a hopeless movie, nor do I think okay. it is a depressing movie. I think there are, and I don't think it's necessarily the, the picture of poverty that I find depressing or hopeless. It really just is its ending and the, the, the development of its ending, which seems like not necessarily hopeless, again, to, to invoke uh, those classes I've been ta- taking as a uh, prospective foster to adopt parent. Yeah. Um, you realize that, like... Mm, with the way things are going, uh, yeah, at the end of the film, careful. I know, yeah. um, that it's not hopeless, that there will be a lot of people working towards reconciliation, a lot of people working towards restoration of this situation and, and relationship. But as of right now, it is definitely at the very least ex- exceedingly sad. Um, but not, also, to, not to Mooney, who's the the girl who's the main character. There's a desperation to her, I, I think. But I think, like you were saying earlier, I think as 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 desperate or unsafe or unhealthy or unfit as we see her living situation to be, Mooney would choose it over anything else. And I think the, undoubtedly yes. The, and the movie I think puts us, even though we are adults and we know better and we know it would be better if she had you know. Um, some security and healthcare right. and all the things that she doesn't have there. Um, uh, I, I think the movie puts us in Mooney's uh, point of view a lot of the time, you know, but it's pre- it, very much so. And I think it's precisely because, you know what <laughs> listeners. Okay. Spoilers for like the next, let's say no, 20 seconds. I don't think, no, I don't want to make people do that. Damn it. <laughs> you can find a way. I'm working on it. <laughs> it's precisely because there's the potential of, of loss. Even if it's something that we might think is a negative uh, and that she would see as a positive, the potential, the possibility of loss of that thing, we are so much in her mindset that I think that I myself felt a certain hopelessness and a certain desperation uh, hmm. at that point. Um, I do think that she will adapt, you know, as we learn in, uh, night of the hunter, you know, children, they, they survive and they endure. Yeah. Um, and I think that will happen with her, but I definitely think that there is a, an element there towards the end that I feel sad for her, but I don't think it's hopeless. I don't think that is the word I would use, but it definitely is sad and maybe, maybe tragic. Tragic doesn't necessarily mean hopeless. doesn't necessarily mean depressing, but I think there is a, I think there is a tragic quality to it that doesn't take away from the general joie de vivre of the film. Yeah. Um, and from that character, but it definitely ends on a 
down yet hopeful note if it's possible for those things to exist at the same time. Yeah, we. I mean, if we did, uh, if we were like, if we did like what Slash Film did, where we had a spoiler section at the end, we could we could go on a long time about, the, long time, about yes. the very end of of the Florida Project, yeah. um, which I'm not entirely in love with the way it ends, but I'm also open to considering other interpretations. Yes, very um, much so. All right. So uh, also, it's so much fun to look at. I know Tangerine was shot on an iPhone. That was a big part of the thing. But Tangerine also looked really cool. Mm. Um, and this is a movie that is not shot on, on an iPhone, but also uh, I think does a lot with um, with these, you know, uh, with poverty type conditions, but in uh, the very specific you know, weird color palette of Orlando. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and those, the areas just outside of, of Disney world. Um, all right. So that's my number two. All right. Number two for you is Sophia Coppola's the beguiled. All right. We finally get to talk about it. All right. Um, talk about, uh, I mean, we talked a lot about movies with, uh, with good scores. I love the score. It's for the beguiled. I love everything about it. Honestly, it's just Sophia Coppola is consistently one of my, favorite filmmakers. I think I just love the way she approaches life. I love the way she approaches character. Um, she's, I don't think she's ever made a film that I don't care for, you know, um, even something like somewhere still has tremendous value on a number of levels. Um, and so, uh, yeah. And it's just a film that is, it's not cynical, but I think it is a little bit, I don't want to say negative either, but it definitely explores the way people relate to one another and the way people see in one another what they can get out of them. But I don't mean exploit. I mean, it's how can this person help me get out of my situation? How can they help me realize my potential Hmm. and not, and again, not in a way that is cynical or anything like that. I think there's a very base quality to relationships and not a craven quality. That's something that I'm working on in therapy, um, that people are not just out to hurt each other all the time. Um, and that sometimes it's okay to trust, but that, uh, if if somebody feels trapped in their circumstances, then they will look for any means of escape. And often the means that presents itself first is another person. And it's just so fascinating to me that every that there are four main characters, I would say. Um, three of them are women and one of them is, is a man. And all four of them, the three women see in the man, each of them see a specific thing that they need. And he has one thing that he needs and sees that in all three. And so everybody is perpetually projecting things onto the other person, very aware of their own needs. And I think maybe not him, but I think the women are all able to maybe even convince themselves that this is a real relationship and that it's not merely them. I feel like I'm being overly negative. I feel like I'm being negative about the characters. I don't think it's about the characters. I like them all and I'm rooting for them all. Uh, except they can't all get what they want. So it's weird to be rooting for all of them. I think it's, I think it's very much about, uh, a very specific, inevitable, and occasionally tragic to go back to that word, uh, element of human nature and human relationships. Um, and 
that's just thematically. I think it's beautifully acted. We've talked about Kirsten Dunst already. She's marvelous. I think it's uh, from an art direction standpoint, costume, cinematography. It's just, it, it really is just this whole package. Just everything is bundled together and everything feeds into everything else until it's just this very complete world that just seems to exist. It's almost like a haunted house movie. Yeah. It just exists completely on its own. Uh, if it turned, if somebody, if it had been revealed that not unlike the others also starring Nicole Kidman, if it was revealed that these characters were in fact ghosts, <laughs> part of me would be like, yeah, all right, I believe it. Uh, there's also, we've seen in recent years, a return to old fashioned boxier aspect ratios. We talked about mm-hmm. ghost story being one, three, three, this movie, I think, is 166, um, as was the movie Most Beautiful Island that came out uh, mm-hmm. this year. Um, it was also 166. Uh, and I think that's... I, I, at a certain point, I'm sure it'll end up becoming a novelty and every every like hipster indie director sure. will make their movie in, in 166 or 133 or whatever, and maybe that's already happening. But uh, so far, I've really liked the movies that have, that have chosen to re- return to this old-fashioned... Uh, aspect ratio and i think um the 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 claustrophobia you get from the 166 uh from this not being a widescreen movie um uh, i think really helps especially mm-hmm. the way that it allows people not only to be boxed in by the by the by the frame but also by the like tall trees you know the we think about yeah the road to the 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 home um in in the woods where we first meet where um um, where where McBurney is first met by uh, the youngest um, yeah. student, um, an adorable it, little moppet. <laughs> yeah, um, but even, but she's uh, uh, I, I, yeah. I don't want to give it too much away. She turns out to be kind of a badass. Yeah. To pretty much all, I, mean, I think that's. I agree with everything you said thematically, but I also think there's something that I took away from it about um, the way that you kind of have to that people maybe have to prioritize their ethics in the face of a threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that if you weigh everything out, McBurney is probably more a good dude than a bad dude. But yeah, I'd say, but the extent to which he represents a threat to them means that all his intentions don't matter. Right. And that ends up frustrating him and making him more of a bad dude as the movie goes on. Yeah. And then, yeah, I, and I don't want to get into spoilers here, but you talked about cynicism. I think it's okay. I think it's okay to see the movie a little cynically yeah. because it does involve characters that I think would describe themselves as as, as good people, and I think we would generally think of as good people uh, eventually having to take um, some actions that um, we'd like to think we. We'd like to think we wouldn't be capable of. Yeah, um, but you understand why they do it. Yeah, at, like a hundred percent. And yeah, and so I think it's. I feel bad using a word for using a word like cynical to address it. I think I've used the word clear-eyed earlier. I think it's just it's willing. Like all of these people are good people in the right circ in most circumstances, but and that's the other thing is like they're in the middle of a war, and while the war doesn't seem to be touching them that much, I think the mentality of hey, you do what you got to do to survive uh, has permeated everybody's mindset. And so I think there are extraordinary circumstances and it drives pretty much everybody to do something that they probably wouldn't have done otherwise. 
Uh, all right. It's also, yeah, it's very beautiful, intense. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to use it again because you liked it. Uh, horror informed. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Number. Number one. Oh, that's where we're at. Number one. Yes. For me. I'm hoping it's your number one because we haven't talked about it yet. Let's see. Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread. For the first time in 11 years, David, <laughs> we have the same number one. That is very exciting. Yes. That, I can't believe that is the first time that's happened. Weird, right? Yeah. Um, well, Though in retrospect, let me ask you this. Looking back on 2007, what would your favorite movie be? Um, did we do one that year? We did. I've rethought mine. Mine at the time was Ratatouille, but I've rethought it. Well, now I have to look at what mine was. Yours was There Will Be Blood. Uh, no, it's still There Will Be Blood. Okay. Mine is Zodiac now. Um, Pretty definitively. Yeah, I've looked at like past ones. Um, yeah, let's do this real quick, and then we'll get into the, okay. the thing. Because um, I was recently, because it's been 10 years, I was looking at my 2008 list, and I think mm-hmm. uh, Rachel Getting Married was my top, top then and would probably still be my top now. Mine was The Visitor, which uh, might stay... Now that I think about it. Um, but now I've lost the, uh, I've lost my lists or the, the phone app orders them in a different way. Oh, okay. Um, I would, I wish I could just like, just give it to me alphabetically. Why can't you just do that? <laughs> um, uh, here we go. I feel like I could tell you your favorite movie of every year. Oh, that that's fun. This. Okay. 2009. What do you think it is? 2009 for you. I think that was. Damn, I feel it was like I feel it was like a main, like a mainstream film, but I might be wrong about that. 2009, actually, I don't remember. Oh, where the wild things are was my oh, number one. Okay, yeah, that's still probably I don't know. Uh, Inglorious Passage is really good. So is in the loop. It is. It is pretty great. Yeah. Um, and I love Public Enemies, which I think was an honorable mention for me that year. Um, okay. All right. What is it, what, do you know your 2009? My 2009 at the time uh-huh. was The Messenger. I think in rethinking it, it's probably either Inglorious Bastards or The White Ribbon. Okay. Can you guess my 2010? I know Toy Story 3 was pretty high. You was that it. number one? It was Toy Story okay. 3. I would say... Um, that's probably still up there, but I would think, um, Scott Pilgrim and Uncle Boom Me might be, okay. uh, above it now. My 10 was Black Swan and I think it would, I think it remains Black Swan. Okay. This is very fun. <laughs> is it? Yes. It was a lot of fun for me, except I still, like, this shit's all out of order. 2011. Now this is one, see, you know how, if I see a movie later, mm-hmm. I can go back and make it. Oh, so right. okay. I currently have a different number one than I did for 2011 than I did when we did the episode. Do you remember what mine was when we did the episode? It was either Take Shelter or Tree of Life. It was Take Shelter. Okay. Now, it, now Take Shelter is number two. My number one is Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. Okay. 11 for me, it was Moneyball and probably stays Moneyball. Okay. Can you guess my 2012? 12 was Django. Was it? For you. It was Yeah, Now we're getting into stuff where I'm, yeah, I'm more recent. I'm more like myself. So this is going to stay the same. Yeah. yeah. Mine was the master sticking around. Yeah. Um, my 13 changed. Definitely. Okay. What was it? It was enough said, which is a marvelous film. Yeah. And now upon rewatch of inside Lewin Davis, that is number one with a bullet. Okay. Uh, my 2013, you remember? Oh, shoot. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. 
Was it the Great Beauty? It was the Great Beauty. Okay. I, yeah, I'll keep it there. Yeah. Upstream color, upstream color was really good, but it is really great. I'd, I'd, I'd stick with Great Beauty. Do you know my twenty fourteen? Fourteen was Selma. Yeah, and yours the Babadook. The Babadook, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, that was the year we both had uh, female directors. That's right. That's right. So progressive. <laughs> Let's all pat ourselves in the back <laughs> about that. All right, twenty fifteen. Mine was. Oh gosh, hang on. Now I'm having a hard time. I don't. I have a hard time remembering what mine was in 2015. Well, that's not here. I'll give you a, cl- uh, uh, a clue. You did not see this coming. Oh, did I not? No. Okay. Let's see. It wasn't Casa de mi Padre because I know that's one you love. I do really um, like that movie, but that was older than that, wasn't it? Tw- uh, it? It was. Yes. 2015. Damn. Hang on. What was my? Oh, mine was Brooklyn. Okay. Okay. Yours was i don't remember now the nightmare the nightmare that's right yes okay how exciting and i think i'm the assassin and carol were both that year yeah but i think i might still stick with the nightmare i don't know it's uh and then last year mine was la la land although now it's personal shopper Mm -hmm. what was yours mine was a monster calls okay all right i'm fine with now, that was a fun little detour. Bringing us here Bringing to, us to 2017. The, the first year ever that we have both had the same number one. This is That's very exciting. Very exciting. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread. Um, uh, I, for spoiler reasons, I can't say it's funny. Your number one and number two have a huge plot point in yeah, common. Weird, right? Um, but we can't talk about it for spoiler reasons. You're talking reasons. about great costume design, right? <laughs> yeah, great costume design. Um, uh, I think... Well, what do you have to say about Phantom Thread? Because I just talked. It's, I mean, it, it's a fascinating film. It seems to have just sprung out of nowhere. Of course it didn't. It was made. Um, but it just, it's so fascinating. And I feel like this, I tend to feel like this with somebody like a Paul Thomas Anderson or the Coens. That my year is just going along. I'm watching movies. I'm enjoying them. I have a favorite and all that. And then they, and then this person's like, what do you think of this? I'm like, all right, it seems to exist on a different plane. Um, mm-hmm. And Phantom Thread, similar to Beguiled, like it was close for me between those two. Um, for similar reasons, they just seem to exist on a, on a whole different plane from other movies. Um, and Phantom Thread just seems to be trying to do things. It just, it has its own agenda, it's interested in exploring relationships, creativity, filmmaking as well, because it definitely owes a lot of its tone to, to go back to Hitchcock. I think there's a lot of Hitchcock in there, certainly. Um, not to mention it's, it's its own little merchant ivory film, you know, like there's, and, and it's just so fascinating that it incorporates all of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember I heard the score before I saw the film. Oh. And the first track of the score, I mean, the whole score is beautiful, but the first track, it's just this very high violin. And this is something I found about Johnny Greenwood in general, but he is just like, I'm writing music and if you like it or not, I don't (laughs) care. I'm doing what I want to do. And I feel like that feeling 
I went into the film with that feeling. Like any movie that has this as its score, like this high pitched, long, drawn out violin uh, in the first track, um, that seems almost frightening. It just it puts me on edge. And this is not a suspense film, except that it is. It, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, really, the the movie. Uh, it's lazy to say it casts a spell, but it does cast a spell. But I'll talk about, I guess what I, what I mean by that in that so much of the movie is, uh, unconventional is almost too small a a word in terms of, yeah, the music you're saying there, it should be off putting the, this man should be off putting the nature of the relationship and what it becomes is downright perverse. And yet because, you know, we talk, I talk a lot about, you know, film is, uh, a lot of people talk about the idea of the film is a bunch of different art forms at once. And Phantom Thread is a movie where you see when everything is working together, that's what I mean by it casts a spell because it all yeah. works together and you almost don't think about until it's over. Like, Oh, that was kind of perverse that movie. Yeah. Uh, and it, it really is. Um, but it feels so immediate and, and real. um, and uh, I mean, a lot of that is down to not just Paul Thomas Anderson, um, but like you said, costumes. Obviously, the performances is yeah. uh, Danny Day Lewis, but also also Vicky Creeps, um, Leslie Manville, Leslie yeah. Manville. Yeah. Um, uh, and by the way, I don't mean to imply that the score was merely off-putting because uh, it's also insanely beautiful. Like it feels right. like it could exist. Like I would love to see a symphony perform it. You know. Um, well, they're doing those. Uh, they've done a few live, like with the score live. Really? Um, screenings. Yeah. That would be fun. Yeah, it would be fun. I haven't been able to make it to, to one, um, by fun. I mean, deeply haunting. Yeah. Um, cause yeah, that's what the film is on so many levels. Like it's, I feel like unsurprisingly, I feel like I did with the master, which is, I feel like I can't even begin to talk about it because like you said, it's all this, it's this, it's all one thing. And the way we tend to talk about movies is singling out individual things. And it feels wrong to do that. Um, but I'll do my best. Um, the, I mean, it's, it's certainly about this relationship, but what this relationship brings out of both parties and it's perverse in some ways. And yet in others, it's just an extreme version of what a relationship needs to be strange as that may sound. Right. Yeah. And I think it deals very much with the very human need to be needed, um, specifically on the part of both uh, our, our female characters. You know, Leslie Manville, clearly her identity is wrapped up in how much she is, how necessary she is uh, to Daniel Day-Lewis. And then Vicky Creeps is not necessary at all. Mm-hmm. As shown by like the way Leslie Manville treats her as though like you're just the latest one. Right. You can be replaced and will be. And you don't and of course like nobody wants to believe, certainly in a in a romantic relationship, nobody wants to believe that they're unnecessary. And so she goes about making herself necessary and but that sounds but that sounds selfish and it is a little bit and it certainly is dark the turns that it takes but at the same time 
Daniel Day-Lewis is a character who only ever needs people, uh, but he's only ever focused on his own mm-hmm. needs, and then he pushes people away. And then I was talking with a friend of the show, Jason Eakin, and he finds the relationship perverse yet beautiful because yeah. when it comes right down to it, if somebody – this is something that in my own marriage I have experienced that somehow – we push people away and convince ourselves that that's us being selfless mm-hmm. that we, it's like, no, 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 no. Don't you worry about it. You know, don't you worry about me when in fact, that's really just a way of distancing. And eventually in the film, a character makes it so that you cannot, Vicky creeps ultimately works it so that he can't distance himself from her. And it's almost like she recognizes that she needs to be needed but that he needs to like take his walls down and admit that he needs people in a way that even he's not ready to deal with. Um, and it's, it's oddly, it's perverse, but one could say that any, any long relationship (laughs) is perverse. Like if you look at the types of arguments that Jen and I have had, if you look on the outside, you're just like, why are these people staying with each other and clearly making each other miserable? Why are you, are they doing that? Um, but, that's that's kind of the the nature of it. I remember, uh, sorry to invoke this, but uh, my pastor once said that uh, that he was talking about marriage, but relationships. It's essentially a Mack truck that drives over a rickety bridge, uh-huh. and in doing so, it reveals every possible weakness that that bridge has and every flaw that that bridge has, so that it can then be worked on, and. This is the this is the the truck going going across the bridge. It's not a pleasant experience. It could be a very disturbing experience, but it is ultimately, I think, a very necessary experience. I think th- I'm glad you pointed out. I'm, gl- I'm glad you used that metaphor because I'm going to stick with it. Um, but uh, I'm glad you pointed out the the sort of um, uh, the just the, the general sort of relationship thing or or marriage thing. Um, uh, and because of what I want to do is I, I don't, I don't want to build one film up by tearing another down, but I do think it's helpful to compare. I think Darren Aronofsky also made a film this year that is kind of about how it could be difficult to be married to a creative individual. Yeah. Jason actually um, said this film could have been called mother <laughs> um, for a number of reasons. But I think the difference to, to stick with your metaphor is maybe part of the reason I didn't like mother is it feels like him saying, Oh, that's my bridge. That's my rickety bridge. Deal with it. Yeah. Whereas Phantom Thread kind of fakes you out by making you seem, making it seem at first, like it's going to be that kind of movie about like, um, you know, the, everyone, uh, you know, bending to the, to the will of this powerful, creative, uh, manipulative man. But it ends up becoming about what you're talking about, about, uh, Vicky, Vicky groups is the first person who's willing to point out the flaws in the bridge um, and to actually do something about it as painful as it might be to him uh, at first and then not. And then again, and then not, you know, it's not like it's, it's not like a uh, ripping a bandaid off. It's not like this is going to suck. You know, the the relationship It's not like it gets tough for a second and then it's fine. Yeah. It's definitely a cycle. Yeah. It's, and, and I think there's uh, a lot more honesty, even though, the, the the relationship is to go back to the word we keep using quite perverse. There's a lot more honesty um, and, and um, sympathy and caring and fairness to the way that Paul Thomas Anderson portrays a marriage or a relationship in Phantom Thread than in the way 
Aronofsky did in Mother, I think. And I think there's just more honesty than we're used than we really see in most relationships portrayed on screen. Because I think one of the things that makes it most perverse isn't necessarily what one person is doing, what Vicky Creeps is, what she is working with. Uh-huh. Uh, it is Daniel Day Lewis's eventual enthusiasm. Uh-huh. <laughs> that is what it's like. Oh, yeah. Like because my first reaction is like. This is unsettling. But then you, it sounds weird, but in a way, like why, why would he be, why would he be so ecstatic about this? Yeah. Except that as strange as it may sound like, it, it's like, wow, you must really care about me for, to actually do this, to go this far to, to essentially to seem to hurt me. Although, you know, to hurt me, in order to get through to me, like it's, it's so strange. Like there have been times when it's like, it's like someone is hugging you because that's what you need at that moment. But you feel like you're suffocating me. It's like, yeah. no, there, you might feel that, but you're going to have to work through that. What they're actually doing is showing tremendous affection for you. Um, and you might like in a genuine affection for you. Um, but I definitely know plenty of people that like the movie, but find it to be tremendously disturbing. I still find it disturbing, but yeah, but I think it's sweet. Uh, I know oddly beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and there's, yeah, you, t- you talked about that, uh, his, in- his enthusiasm being the real like mind blower. Um, there was a, a Twitter thread that was like, name your best, like, individual like moments their favorite individual moments in any film and one of mine is from the shape of water which is just sally hawkins um on the bus in the rain and watching the two raindrops like race along the bus window my other one and i can't go into spoilers as to why but there's a scene near the end of phantom thread that is just Daniel Day Lewis eating an omelet, and it is the most thrilling exhilarating scene it may be in cinema in 2017 with some really wonderful non-verbal acting on his part Mm -hmm. Like, it's just, he said it's going to be his last role. I don't believe him. You don't? No. Why not? Don't get me wrong. I'm sure if anybody can commit to the idea of retirement, it's him. Yeah. He could just go off and be a cobbler again, I guess. Yeah. Um, Honestly, it's just like, he's too young and he's, I think he loves acting too much. I think he will miss it and... There, Lord knows there's any number of directors that would want to work with him. Did he say he's done with acting or he's done with film acting? Cause he can, uh, it could be film he could acting. Just do the, yeah. He could just work on the stage for the rest of his That's true. Yeah. life. Yeah. But I think I, I honestly feel like he probably really enjoys working. I, I'm sure he enjoyed working with Scorsese, with Paul Thomas Anderson, with Spielberg. Like with whoever working, directed nine. Is that Rob Marshall? <laughs> Rob Marshall. They probably didn't enjoy that that much, but, um, it's just like, yeah, this guy's kind of milk toast. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but it's, it definitely, I will say that the film certainly seems to change protagonists and it very much becomes Vicky Creep's film. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, we talked about that with, uh, with Scott, um, oh, okay. uh, on his top 10 episode. Yeah. And it's, and she's more than able to, to carry that. And it's, uh, but the performances all around are marvelous. And that moment that you're talking about is, on both of their parts, because she's yeah. looking at him, he's looking at her, and it's just, it's such a, and then he makes a very deliberate choice, uh-huh. and it is, 
I, I found I was smiling as I was uh, watching. Oh, definitely, that. me too. Yeah, um, both times. Yeah, it is just a remarkable film, and and I agree with you. I think this year has been underwhelming, but there was, you know, I, I'm reluctant to say this word because I feel like we've said it in the past. Um, I think it is a genuine masterpiece that I'm glad it is getting some. I'm glad that it's getting some good press and that the, the Academy chose to honor it as much yeah. as it did. I'm happy about that. Cause it means more people are going to see it, but I feel like none of us, including you and me, I feel like none of us truly understand the brilliance of this film just yet. I felt the same about the master and about there will be blood. You know, it's interesting that 2007, there will be blood was your favorite film. 2012, the master is my favorite film. Neither of us seem to love inherent vice. That I much. did love inherent vice, but it just, uh, maybe it was a strong, was that 2015? It was 14, I think 2014. Yeah. Maybe it was just a strong year. Uh, um, I think it was. Yeah. I need to watch the master again. I think the master is, um, I'm trying to think, uh, maybe the master and boogie nights and heart eight are the only Paul Thomas Anderson films I've only seen once. Everything else, including Phantom Thread and Inherent Vice, I saw more than I've seen more than once. Well, those three are definitely uh, definitely uh, bear uh, repeat viewings. Even Hard Eight. Yeah, I think so. Okay, I mean it's <laughs> mostly an exercise in genre, but it's you know Philip Baker Hall delivering a really yeah, awesome performance. Go. All right. Well, again, I'm, I I can't get over how excited I am that we both had the same number one I, for the I, first time. I knew, I knew it was coming too. Yeah. That's the other thing. I was like, okay, I. I have a feeling. I, I, I don't think I, I saw your BP submissions. I was like, all right, right well, clearly. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think I had realized we'd never done it before. Yeah. I think that's what's exciting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess I knew what your number one is when you said Beguiled number two, because I thought there was a chance yeah. that Beguiled might be your number one. Cause it I was close. I do love the Beguiled quite a bit. Um, but Phantom Thread is just operating on... I feel like the beguiled is higher than most of the other movies this year. And then I think phantom thread is higher than that. Uh, well you can find, um, you can comment on this episode on the, on the website or, or tweet at us, uh, let us know what, um, how you agree or disagree or what your, um, your favorite movies of the year were. You can, uh, that's all at battleship com is where you can find all of, um, you can find our, uh, this episode, obviously you found, uh, but all our contributors, ten, top 10 lists that we've posted over the past two months. Um, and, uh, reviews of most of these movies, uh, are available at battleship com. Uh, so check that out. Um, email us at David at battleship com or Tyler at battleship com. You can find, uh, me David on Twitter at Davey pretension, and you can find Tyler on Twitter at, Tyler pretension. Anything else to plug right now? Uh, not right now. No. All right. Um, so I guess that's it then. Thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 